Super simple. Pretty sure it's recording. We'll be fine. So, how was your drive here? It was good. Except I got to Worsfield Road in 31 realized it wasn't open. So Hey, you went into Greenwood, so it's construction zone everywhere. Yeah, yeah, well, the whole world. I mean, you go to the north side of India, you can't get anywhere in this town right now. It didn't shut down. That's... And that's just a part of growing, I guess. Yeah. I mean, the the roundabouts are going everywhere. I enjoy yeah. roundabouts. Yeah, I, I, I do too. Uh, they've put them in all around us. I live in Franklin Township, down around the 53s, and we've got almost every intersection now is a roundabout, and I love them. I, I not only love going through them, but I love watching people that don't know how to drive through them go through them. It's great entertainment. It is pretty good. My dad was telling me, he's from Cincinnati, and he was telling me that when he was a young kid, he remembers roundabouts going the opposite way. And I never believed him, but apparently roundabouts used to go the opposite way. Yeah. So when people were going up to him, they'd go the opposite of way of what the opposite is supposed to be. Yeah. And people would just hit head on every single day. We he were, said he'd sit out by there. We were in Ireland a few years ago in Galway, and uh, we rented a car. And, of course, you drive the opposite mm-hmm. side. And you drive the opposite side of the road. So we get there, and I go out, and I get the car, and it's like a Volkswagen Sirocco or one of those Ooh. things, and it's all beat up. Every corner is dented, and I walk back into the rental car guy. I said, hey, you need to come out here in a lot and look at this. I said, because I'm not responsible for any of this. He goes, I don't worry about it, Yank. He said, that's the car we give you, Yanks. Go tear it up. And I said, okay. But to drive into a roundabout on the right side and then have to go left into the roundabout, I mean, everything was counterintuitive, and I thought, I am going to tear the hell out of this car. But I, I brought it back, and it was all in good shape. There wasn't any problem with it, but that was fun. So you went to Ireland? Yeah. We How was over. that? Uh, I, I tell you, Ireland is the one place I've been, and I've been, I'm not like a worldly traveler, but I've been a lot of places. It was the one place that everywhere we went was exactly what you would think Ireland would be, from the people to the scenery to the buildings to everything. It was fantastic. I can't wait to go back. We flew into Shannon, stayed in Galway, went over to Dublin, uh, saw the Aran Islands and uh, Attenry and a bunch of different things that are there. And now I'd like to go down on the south. And my last name's Stahl, which is German, but my other three grandparents were Murphy, O'Leary, and Reagan. Mm-hmm. So I've got a little bit of Irish in me. And I'd like to go down to County Cork, some of the other areas where my Murphy side of my family's from, and see that. But Ireland, I highly recommend a trip there. It's fabulous. I've got a few friends that have been to Ireland a few times, and they show pictures and that place looks beautiful. Yeah. I, I, I tried. We've got an exchange program going with Cologne, Germany, a firefighter exchange program. Had it for about the last 10 years. They'll send somebody during the even years. We'll send somebody during the odd years. And I've got great friends from Cologne. Uh, and I'm trying to get a thing set up through the Emerald Society with Devlin. But this stupid COVID, uh, it, just, it just killed everything. There was no travel or anything else. I'd finally found the person to talk mm-hmm. to with the Devlin Fire Brigade and said, hey, we need to set something like this up. Because it'd be great to go over there and mm-hmm. ride with them. That'd be fantastic. That'd be really cool to see how they do things. Yeah. A lot of the fire trucks in like Europe are a lot smaller, and oh, they yeah. operate yeah. completely different. Yeah, especially their gear. Their yeah. gear is a lot different than ours. A lot smaller. <clears throat> I went and rode uh, with Cologne. It was uh, Dave Greider had set this thing up. We're sister cities in Indianapolis mm-hmm. with Cologne, and he had set a deal up with one of their chiefs, and they, he'd come over here, and then he'd gone over, and they started the exchange program. And Dave set up the first one where I met a guy named Uva Siemens. And uh, Uva came over, and we were a host family for him. They stay about a month. And we were with Uva for about a week, and it was just immediately we were best buddies. It was like we'd worked together for 20 years. Uh, got really close to him. He came back for two or three FDICs, and he's kind of my shadow over there. He sets up whoever they're going to get and sends them over, and then when we send somebody over, he takes care of our people. So it was probably five or six years ago. Uh, went over, and I rode one day with one of the engine companies, 
and then rode one day with one of the battalion chiefs. And then my wife and daughter came over during their spring break, and we just had fun in Cologne for a week. Really? Uh, but the European way, it, you know, there, there's so much that's the same. And I've, I know this from every firehouse that I've ever gone into. Firefighters are firefighters are firefighters. From Tokyo, Japan, to Sao Paulo, Brazil, to Cologne, to Stockholm, all the places I've been, they're firefighters. Uh, attitudes, jokes, pranks, uh, just, they're all the same. I mean, the, the same motivation to be a firefighter, the, the same love of the job. Uh, you're fighting fires. I mean, the basic job doesn't change. Now, a lot of their techniques are different. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one state you've got six people on an engine company, uh, what they call an engine company. Uh, the right front seat is not the company officer. It's actually the battalion chief or the station chief. Really? They're the same size city as we are but they've only got 11 stations and they're massive. Some of them are massive, massive stations with a lot of equipment in it. And then there's sprinklings of volunteer companies all the way through the city that back up. Um, but then you've got an engineer and you got four people in the back and that's where the company officer is. And then there's the attack team. And so they've got, they come off their rig. Uh, they do have hydrants, but a lot of their hydrants are underground. So they got a big reel on the back where they stop and they've got to open it up and they got this hydrant that they screw into it and they lead off with that. And they've got their attack teams very strictly organized, as you can only imagine in a German way. I mean, the, the, the XO for the battalion chief gets there and he never really leaves the buggy. And they've got multiple radios and different things set up in the back of it. And it's a true command post. And he runs everything from there. Then the chief does get out. Then other chiefs can come in just like we can. But uh, they'll dump just two stations and have a basic box alarm or maybe almost a second alarm fire. be considerable to us. But very uh, disciplined in their approach. Uh, They get a fire. All their gear gets taken from them and cleaned. They get issued gear. They even get air packs. They've got like their TSU or their air support unit will come out. They will hand them a brand new air pack or a reconditioned or refurbished air pack and take the one they used back, clean it, inspect it, change it, put it back on it, and and uh, they get face pieces and everything else swapped out for one for every fire. Wow. So yeah, they're way ahead of us in a lot of stuff. Wow. So one question: Did you learn a lot of German while you were there? I learned absolutely none. <laughs> Are you uh, serious? Yeah, not very good at it. <laughs> uh, my daughter did take German in high school, and we took a trip. Also, we went to Vienna, Salzburg, Munich, and up to Berlin uh, for her high school retreat. Mm-hmm. Um, so she knew a few words, but uh, everybody speaks English when you get oh, over there, and they really, yeah, they, it's it's just cheap. it's a yeah, it's a common language, and uh, so you feel kind of like an idiot when you walk in, and then people start to talk, and you look, and you think, I have no idea what they're saying. You know, even if you pick up a few words and a few phrases, mm-hmm. they just talk so fast, mm-hmm. and then there's different accents, and you can't they make yell them. a lot. They, yeah, they get a little loud. I would yeah. say I don't say yell, but but they've got they got they build in a kind of a crescendo with their voice when you're talking to them. Yeah, so, what did you learn there, especially right with their officers and the battalion chiefs, that you brought back and utilized here back in Indiana? A lot of it doesn't translate, unfortunately. Uh, what I would like to see would be the mask exchange. There are a lot of things that they did do. Uh, one of the things I really liked was their dispatch center, and if you could see a picture of this thing. They're 24-hour firefighters. They work a shift there, and they rotate off the floor. Uh, they got bunk rooms. they got kitchens. They got, it's just like a firehouse, only you're a dispatcher. And they've got an entire wall, and I mean entire wall. It's like 20 feet by 60 feet full of monitors. 
and it shows everything that's going on on all the bridges. Cologne's separated by the Rhine River, so there's like nine bridges, and half the city's on one side, half the city's on the other side. Half the bridges are under construction. One of them was closed when I was there, so to get apparatus from one side of the river to the other is, is, is a chore. And they've got like a Google Maps thing up that shows all the traffic patterns in the city so they can hit somebody and say, don't take you know such and such straw, so mm-hmm. you have to go this direction to get there. Uh, all the things that they monitor that are going on in the city and all the runs, and they've got a master control where like the chief sits up there and they've got all these control centers that are out around. That, that I would love to take that dispatch center and bring it here. They, they did it so well. It was great. That's really cool. Yeah. That's exciting that you got to go and do that. Is, yeah, there, exactly. is there any more promise that you'd be able to go back and do it again? I, I could probably go to Cologne anytime I wanted to go. Really? Uh, and uh, like for the last two years, we've been shut down because of yeah. the pandemic. Uh, we've got a guy on the bubble. He's hit me a couple of times wanting to go, and it's like, well, you know, all the Everything's restricted now. You mm-hmm. can't go back and forth. Uh, but as soon as it opens back up again, we've got a guy to send, and they've got a guy to send. But I made great friends. I mean, they, we've had six or seven guys now that have come over. Actually, their chief of department right now, he came over. Really? He was uh, The way they work their chiefs, um, firefighters are hired like local community just like we are. But the chiefs go, you have to have a college degree to even get into it. Uh, and he's got his Ph.D. in biochemistry or something. So this guy's no dummy um he's actually from munich he's down in, from down around bavaria um but you go to the academy and then you get assigned somewhere as a chief so you might you don't grow up in the ranks of the clone fire department like we're used to uh you get assigned somewhere so he was a deputy chief in clone and then was assigned to the airports every airport military civilian everything else he was the chief of all the airport fire departments and then came back to cologne as chief of department his name's christian miller super guy all of them that have come over have just been fantastic so that's not they don't have forgive me on this part i don't know a bunch about germany they don't have like their own provinces or states yeah is it just so they do have that they do yeah but are they shipped around in just that province or multiple different they they, they can go anywhere in the country from what i understand so is it more federally federally ran or is it just to to a degree yes it's still local run uh but um all the standards and everything are all german standards that you can go from berlin to berlin or something yeah, I don't know anything about it either, <laughs> but uh, I just know that the people are great and the firemen are firemen. It's a lot of fun. That's awesome. Yeah. That's very cool. Uh, so let's talk about your history in the fire service. When did this start for you? What got you interested, and uh, how long have you been in the fire service? Well, that, that that's a long story, and uh, like Winnie the Pooh, every time I tell it, it gets longer. You know, uh, I was a kid, grew up on the north side of Indianapolis, thirty nine hundred on Ruckel, over by the fairgrounds. I don't know how familiar you are with the north side. Fairly rough neighborhood, uh, 60s, you know, mid to late 60s, early 70s, very changing demographics and all. And there just wasn't a lot to do in the neighborhood but hang out and get in trouble, have the cops chase you kind of thing. And we were, we were little heathens. And Engine 28 was at uh, 38th and Ruckel, 512 East 38th Street. They called it Maple Road. They never changed the name from back in the day. 512 East Maple Road on all the calendars. And... Uh, we hung out uh, a little bit at the firehouse and went by. You know, they'd fill your tires on your car or on your, on your bicycle or whatever. And the neighborhood firehouse was a focal point for everybody to go to. You voted there. You had any problems. Uh, you had a bat in your house. You had to go down to the firehouse. The guys would come get it out. You know, it was just, just, just the neighborhood firehouse. And uh, 
we were little heathens, and one day we were at 40th and Central. There's a three-story building there that was a switching station for Bell Telephone at the time. They had some operators in there, but it basically operated at Atwater, Melrose, and a couple of the other mm-hmm. north side tele- or telephone stations. Well, they had a huge shrub row out front of it that blocked the parking lot off from Central Avenue, and we could make snowballs and climb up inside these shrubs. And... Uh, you'd have the one guy on the end that would call out the car. He'd say, like, Blue Ford. And everybody would pop up and try to all hit the Blue Ford with the snowballs and then duck back down <laughs> into the shrubs. So if they came at you from the central side, you could squirt out the back, be gone yeah. down the alley and through the neighborhood, and they could never catch you. If they came from the parking lot side, you could squirt out across Central Avenue, go through yards, and be gone. So never got caught doing it. But we were up there one day, and we were throwing snowballs at cars, and uh, an engine started coming up Central Avenue. And they had that, you know, the one little rotating Presto light or whatever it was, a little wigwags, an open cab maximum. The queue was wound out, and it was screaming up central, and we thought it was engine 28. Well, it got up here, it was engine 22. I mean, we didn't even know where engine 22 was, and it turned on 40th Street and went west and dropped the snowballs and gone. You know, there was a fire in the neighborhood, so we were chasing it down to Washington Boulevard, and it turned left, and we turned the corner, and it was, you know, it was snowy. It was kind of humid, so the uh, smoke was really holding to the ground. You could look down Washington Boulevard and see the red lights and hear those engines, just those old Waukesha or those old Cummins engines, diesels just fired up, you know, running and mm-hmm. pumping. They were screamers, and 22 had caught a plug, and they'd gone led up to it. And so we went running down there, and uh, it was heavy smoke out on the streets. We realized we ran around in the backyard. We'd get out of the smoke, and we could see them put out the fire. Big as the water family, Waters family. A big house, and it, it was just huffing and puffing smoke. It was deep, it, nasty brown smoke, and we, we were thrilled to death you know this is great and we saw the guys from the 28s and we said something to them we kind of just started bannering back and forth with them and they turned around and kind of whipped us with the hose string it's like 20 degrees out <laughs> so we took exception to that so we bought up a bunch of snowballs and threw them at them <laughs> for all your young viewers out there don't get in a snowball fight with a guy with a charged inch and a half hand line or make sure you run once you throw your volley at him because they nailed us. I mean, we were frozen solid. Went home, and I remember walking in, and I was I was just ice. My mom looks at me and she said, what did you do, boy? And I said, oh, I fell in a, in a puddle over by Fagan's house. She goes, where did you find a puddle on a 20-degree day? <laughs> I said, oh, uh, over by Fagan's house. She didn't ask any more questions. She, she didn't want to know what had happened, so I uh, thought out from that. But uh, it's been, been 68, been the summer of 68, and uh, I was riding my bike by the 28th, and there was some guy sitting out front in one of the chairs, and he struck up a conversation with me, and I got off my bike, sat in one of the old prison chairs out in front of the firehouse talking to him. His name was Joe Killalay. And he said, what's your name, kid? And I said, Howard. He goes, you go. I said, no, no, it's Howard. He goes, you go? What the hell kind of a name's you go? I said, my name's Howard. And I thought, so you keep calling me you go for it. Is he got crazy? Is he deaf? What's the deal? And we sat there and talked for a little while. And then the bell rang. And I said, you getting a run? He says, no, no, no. He said, lunch is ready. You going to eat lunch with us? I said, well, I, I don't know. He goes, ah, come on, kid. Put your bike on the front porch. Come on and eat lunch with us. And I went in sat down. They had these big cheeseburgers, and they had homemade fries. You know, they'd cut themselves up, and they had homemade coals. I didn't eat like that at home. I was like, my God, look at this, you know. I mean, so much food, I couldn't eat everything they gave me. And lunch was done. I was like, well, you know, thanks for lunch, guys. I said, where are you going? I said, well, I can get on my bike and go ride. And he said, the hell you are. I said, you got dishes to do. 
I said, what? So you got to do dishes. Get up here. So I got up and was doing the dishes with him. And of course, I learned nicknames in the fire service early. Hugo is what Joe always called me. He was Joe K. Other guys, their nickname was Zippy. Another guy was Mad Dog. And I thought, everybody's got a name here. I thought, I guess I've got a name. That must be a good thing. You know, I've got a nickname already. And I'm like nine years old. And I did the dishes with him. And then I just slowly but surely kept kind of going by the firehouse and hanging out with them and got to know all of them. And uh, was just kind of a fixture there. I mean, this is uh, this is awesome. I mean, I remember asking him, saying, "Let me get this straight. You guys work twenty four hours, and you just all hang out together here. And when you do go to work, you get on that big red truck and you weave in and out of traffic going down Thirty Eighth Street, and you go out and you help people and you put out fires and you do all that cool stuff. And then you come back and then you get two days off. And they said, "Yep." I said, "I'm in. This is what I'm going to do." And then that next year, uh, I saw how real it was. It was August of 69. Uh, my buddy Gerald Bell came up and beat on the door, and he said, there's been a big fire. It's a big fire. He goes, the wake-up station blew up. I said, what? And he said, I remember us sitting in my house eating a frozen TV dinner, and he's beating on the door. I mean, I remember it like it was yesterday. And he said, let's go. So we ran down there. And the wake-up station was it, was, it was just a shack. I mean, it wasn't a very big building at all. It had one of those adobe-like tile roofs on it, and it was a concrete block building, and it was gone. I mean, it was all laid out. The concrete blocks were everywhere. The roof had lifted up and just kind of laid right back down. Uh, what had happened was they had their fuel tanks in the basement, and they were unloading a new load of fuel for their, for their uh, pumps. And something had gone wrong, ground wire or something. There had been a flash fire. And it had trapped a guy in downstairs, and then the, the attendant was upstairs. He got burned up pretty bad, too. Uh, 28s were first due. He was at C-shift. Spanky Eanes was in the seat. Ed Massey was driving. Ray Clegg and then Dave Greider were on the engine. And uh, they were advancing a line down in the basement to try to get the guy out. And there was a secondary explosion, and it trapped Spanky, and it trapped Ray down there. Dave Greider, I think, was a sub at the time. Uh, and he got blown back out the door. He I, he probably caught the plug or whatever, but he was stretching line down the stairs, and then it blew him back out onto the Monon tracks and then blew blocks all over the engine. And all the other companies were just getting there, and it took out about 12 guys or so. If it had been two or three minutes more, they probably would have lost more guys. But uh, you know, when we found out you know, that Spanky, one of our guys at the firehouse, had been killed in the line mm-hmm. of duty, and it was like, oh, my God. Uh, we went down for his funeral, and... Uh, I don't know who it was, but one of the guys' face was all bandaged up. His hands were all bandaged up. And when the uh, procession came by the firehouse, they rang the bell and they did everything that they do. And all the firefighters lined up. We just went down to the end of where the firefighters were and saluted You know, when Spanky mm-hmm. came by. But I remember looking at the guy. His face was all bandaged up and his hands were all bandaged up. He was doing his best to salute. And I, I thought, you know, how powerful is that? You know, I mean, that's... This has got to be the coolest job ever. I've got to do this job. Uh, took the training manual home with me and read it and came back and asked him questions. And they looked at me a couple of times and they called the training academy and said, hey, we got a question for you, you know, about foam or whatever it was. And they're like, oh, okay. And like, how the kid's asking us questions we can't answer. He's the next chief of the Indianapolis Fire Department right here. Uh, but we ended up moving out of there and moving out to Lawrence and uh, – I didn't know. I still I didn't have any way to get down there but the bus. You know, I didn't have a car or anything at the time. And uh, kind of got separated from the fire department a little bit. Never really lost what I wanted to do. And I didn't know what a volunteer fireman was. I mean, I grew up at 39th and Ruckle. I had no idea what a blue light was or anything else. And the air raid siren would go off. 
And then these crazy guys in these cars with all these lights, blue lights, would go flying across 46th Street. Mm-hmm. And the only reason the Air 8 siren went off at 39th and Ruckel was there was a tornado or it was 11 o'clock on Friday. So I'd hear this Air Raid siren go off, and I'd look around, and I mean, I'm, I'm out of my element, you know. But then you'd hear these horns honking, and you could go down to the end of the parking lot in the apartment, so I mean, these guys would all go flying across the street. And I thought, those cops, what are those guys? I, mean, I didn't know what it was, you know. So I, I uh, needed to get a job. It was about 1974, and I went to work at uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Yeah. And $1.74 an hour. I was cutting a fat hog in as minimum <laughs> wage. And... Uh, met a guy named Dave Rapp and he had blue lights on his car. He was the assistant manager and he was interviewing me. And I said, Hey, I got to ask you something, pal. I said, what, what's with those lights? What's with the, every time the air raid siren goes off, he's, he goes, we're firemen, we're volunteer firemen. So you, you're one of those guys that goes screaming across 46th street. He goes, Oh yeah, you got to, got to hurry to get the station so you can catch the rig for it. Gets out. They didn't let their guys go to the scene. You had to go to the station, get on the rig and go from there. And I said, Oh, okay. And he said, you like fires? I said, well, I grew up in a firehouse. He said, you're hired. I said, okay. That was my resume. I grew up in a firehouse. Now I'm a fry boy at Kentucky Fried Chicken. And uh, he uh, hired me. And we're still good friends to this day. Uh, he said, well, we got junior firemen. He said, you need to go over to Station 1. He told me where it was. And pick up an application. And uh, you can become a junior fireman. And you can do training. And you can hang out with us. So I went over and picked up the application. I thought, oh, this is good. I'm kind of back in a firehouse and all. And uh, they let us go to Thursday night meetings. We couldn't go to runs. We couldn't, you know, uh, ride on, you know, go to any fires or anything. But you could go to the firehouse if they had a fire, help them clean up their gear and rack the hose and hang the hose and clean stuff up and kind of hang out with the guys, which was right in my wheelhouse. And uh, you go to their Thursday night meetings. They had meetings every Thursday night and kind of hang out with them. And I'm back. I'm back in the saddle. You know, I'm back with firemen. This is great. And they allow us to go to like state fire schools and different things. And every Saturday morning, we'd go out and one of the guys would come and you know they had they had an old Maxim engine out there, truck nice. five they called it. And so I was really used to that. And and we did. I mean, we laid a thousand miles of hose and you know, we'd throw ladders and hang out and go to their trainings and everything. And so you started getting into your bed to go American Red Cross first aid class. Mm-hmm. And, you know, guys doing everything I could learning everything I possibly could. Uh, and then uh, when I did get a hold of a car, had a 1969 Cutlass named Chuck. It was great. <laughs> uh, finally had a car. Uh, then I joined the Explorers in Indianapolis mm-hmm. and started chasing fires with the Explorers. And then I was mobile. I mean, I could go and I still go by the 28s and hang out with those guys. And a bunch of friends that I knew had kind of bla- blanched out to other firehouses. And a bunch of them, Joe K, and some of them were down at the fives. And uh, so I'd go hang out at the fives and just chase fires. And Indianapolis was not supposed to be, but they're far more liberal. There's, there's two years of official reports at the end of the year that come out that I've got my picture in fighting fires and I'm about like 17 years old and I'm up on a line at a second alarm fire and everything like that's me right there <laughs> so they were far more liberal in letting you do what they probably should do but they were you know always looking after you mm-hmm. and so got there and then in 76 uh, turned 18 and got on as a full-time volunteer firefighter in the city of Lawrence and they issued me my gear and went down to station one the quartermaster was a guy named Vern Hofer, and they handed me an MSA Top Guard helmet that uh, Bobby Bragdon had painted in his garage. It'd been black, but they were going to yellow helmets, so they mm-hmm. painted all the helmets yellow and an old rubber coat with no winter liner. But he told me, "We'll get you one by winter, kid. Don't you worry about it." Uh, a pair of day boots. Uh, the only new thing they gave me were those red day glow rubber gloves mm-hmm. that you had. Uh, a radio, a blue light, and a real book, and a, and a jacket. So there you go. You're a fireman. That's outstanding. And so started catching from then and, and tried twice to get on the city in 79 and 80 and didn't make it. 
but uh, got on Pike in 82. Was on Pike from 82 to 85. And just I just needed to be in the city. I don't like yellow apparatus to begin with, so I couldn't see myself the rest of my life riding around on mm-hmm. yellow apparatus. It just couldn't happen. Um, but I wanted to be in the inner city. I wanted to be back you know, down where my roots were and where I came from. So March of 85, I got on IFD, and the rest is history. Wow, that is a story. It's been a good life. Yeah, it's been pretty good. It's been a lot of fun. If you weren't a firefighter, what would you be? I'd, I'd be homeless. I mean, I, I possess absolutely no talents whatsoever. I can't sing. I can't dance. I can't play a musical instrument. I can't draw. Uh, I can't really do anything. So I'd probably be in a cardboard box behind a Weston Hotel somewhere. Uh, actually, uh, I did work uh, apartment maintenance. The apartments that I lived in, they hired me as like a grounds boy, and I would go around pick stuff up, cut grass and everything, and I ended up getting into uh, – uh, actually the job. I mean, I got an apartment mm-hmm. from it and everything. So I've worked apartment maintenance, uh, little known trivia. I'm a certified apartment maintenance technician and a certified hey. swimming pool operator. I mean, not everybody can say that, oh. but, uh, uh, so I probably would be in property management or something if I hadn't gotten on the fire department, but it, there was just never a question. This is what mm-hmm. I'm, this is what I was put on earth to do is to be a firefighter. I mean, that's it. I, I don't know what else to do. Do you remember your first fire as soon as you got hired on in Indianapolis? On IFD, yeah. Uh, the first one was a garage fire over off of Indianapolis Avenue. I was at Engine 23 um, and uh, caught the plug, and I was, I was on the back step with a guy I came out of the academy with, Daryl Hayden, uh, and uh, it was his first fire ever. It wasn't mine. You know, I was mm-hmm. already, you know, nine, ten years into the fire service. You when got my plenty first of experience when you were an explorer. So I yeah. Thought, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'd seen second alarm fires. I'd seen some of the biggest fires mm-hmm. the city had had in the last ten years. So it was no big deal, you know, for for me, it was a ah, garage fire, no big deal. I said, I'll catch the plug. So I caught the plug <laughs> and went up, and, and he got up here before he had water. He'd, he'd come back. He goes, man, that's hot. <laughs> I said, yeah, it's hot. <laughs> So, but, uh, that, yeah, that it was kind of a, a no big deal. Uh, I was one of those guys and I'll tell you this, I've probably missed more fires by not being at the firehouse than I've been on. Uh, it's just one of those things. If I'd get away and go to the store, they'd have a fire while I was mm-hmm. gone. I remember the Canterbury apartment fire at 16th and I was on the first one that we had, but then the second one where they had all the people jumping out of the windows and everything else. I'm in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. <laughs> I'm driving down. I'm, I'm walking down. My wife uh, got her master's degree, and my daughter had just been born. So this was the first time we'd gone anywhere. Just the two mm-hmm. of us dropped the kid off at the grandparents and went down to Gatlinburg. She's completing her master's degree, so during the day she's studying, doing her papers, and doing whatever it is she does. So I'm free. I'm just kind of going through Gatlinburg, and I'm walking down the main drag in Gatlinburg in the USA. Today's there in one of those, you know stands whatever you call them paper stands stands, yeah and i and i looked down and i thought man that's a hell of a fire (laughs) took a couple it's right on the front page above the full Mm -hmm. full color i took a couple of steps and i thought look like indianapolis and i walked back and i look at it and i thought well that looks like dudley taylor i thought well i'll be damned it is (laughs) and i started looking at this i buy it i pull it out i'm reading it i thought they burnt the canterbury apartments again i'll be damned and they i mean they pulled like 14 15 people out of there i mean there were some oh some incredible rescues and everything else and it was shift change the b shift had it to start and the c shift came Mm -hmm. in so it was like kind of a mixed bag but it was early enough that i probably would have been there and made the run and probably had you know all kinds of awards and people telling stories about me but no i was I was outside of a uh, tie-dye t-shirt shop in Gatlinburg, <laughs> Tennessee, reading about it in USA Today. 
That's just as heroic. Don't you worry about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are my memories of the fire service. Because <laughs> uh, I, I go on vacation now, and Larry stares my XO, and he bumps over, and he just he just shakes his head because he knows something's going to go to hell while I'm gone. There's always fires. There's always some weird thing that happens. You know, they get an extrication run, and the car's in a tree or something. And he's like, God, why does this always happen when you're gone? I said, I'm sorry, Larry. It's been that way for 37 years. <laughs> that is really cool. So with you being a battalion chief in Battalion 5, correct? Yeah. So what has been something that is that has always stuck with you that you've learned from day one? Something that's always stuck with you that you miss about being on an engine, being on a ladder truck? Do you ever have... The, the, the hardest transition from coming off the company is to being a yep. chief. I, I was a safety chief first. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was in sense, sense Safety Central, now I was Safety 4 at the time, uh, before I got the 5th Battalion. Uh, hardest thing was to stop wanting to work. You know, I was, I was on an engine. I was on engine 12 and engine 19. Most of my career was on a ladder, either ladder 7 or ladder 31. Uh, loved it all. Uh, not going in, not tanking up, not on the nozzle, not with the axe. It's like I'm going to sit back and watch these guys work. And, and you realize from that position just how crazy what we do is. And you're doing it. It's you're just doing it. You know, you got your crew with you. You know, you feel good. Yeah, I feel confident. Anything happens, you know, people are going to take care of me. I got everybody around me. Everything's fine. We're gonna we're going to go after this. We're going to get this fire. We're going to get this guy. We're going to do whatever it is. We're going to mitigate whatever this chaos is, and we're going to be fine. But when you stand back and look at it, and, and you can't physically go do it. You know, you can't just stop and go, "Hey, kid, give me that nozzle." You know, it just doesn't work that way anymore. You have to direct people, and you have to take a breath. And watch, and when you do that, especially when you're a safety chief, you want to stop everybody from doing anything. It's like that looks dangerous. It's like, oh wait a minute, a year ago that's what I was doing, you know. I mean, it ta- that transition was well, for me. I, I imagine it's for everybody. For me, that was tough. It's kind of I'm not a fireman anymore. I'm a radio pusher and a finger pointer now, and that 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 was hard. That was really hard to get over that. So, with you being in the battalion now, what goes through your mind when you're on a scene of a fire? What is your first thought that comes to your head when you know it's a fire? Uh, well, not to get too textbook and everything else about it, uh, just to keep it simple. Number one is, I've always said, I've always told officers, and even my philosophy is, as a young officer was, my primary focus is that it shift change tomorrow, everybody goes home with a smile on their face saying, see you next day. Now, to get to that point takes a lot. You know, 90% of what we do is around the firehouse, interpersonal relationships and everything else. But on the fire ground, when you get there, uh, I, I think probably the first thing I ask is, you know, it's all the risk benefit. I'm not going to get in all that. Is, is can we do this? Is, is this? Does this make sense what it is that we're doing? Uh, reading the smoke, reading the structure, knowing what you've got coming and knowing your crews. And I, and I am truly blessed that every company in my battalion, every firefighter in my battalion, every officer in my battalion are top-notch. Every chief's going to tell you Mm -hmm. that. I'm not lying to you. They truly are. They make me look good. So I've got great faith in letting these guys after it and let them go what they're going to do because I know they're not going to do anything dumb. They're going to be smart about it. Makes my life very, very easy. But there comes a time where you have to say, wait a minute, Wait a minute, fellas. You know, you 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 got to pull back on that leash a little bit. You want that aggression, but you got to pull back on that leash a little bit. And I'm just constantly assessing: is what we're doing smart? 
can we do this? We're going to accomplish the goal no matter what it is without getting anybody hurt uh, and sending these guys home tomorrow smiling and saying, see you next day. Now, with you saying that, does that mean that's you learn that from experience of making mistakes, of letting them kind of go too far? Oh, or yeah. is that just? Oh, oh yeah. Well, well, not not from me being a chief point, but, mm-hmm. but with 40-plus years in the fire service of having seen it and having done it. You know, of, yeah. of, of, it's the best way to learn. Yeah, make, making that hallway you shouldn't have made, you know, and then coming out and your ears are burnt, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and uh, or something collapses and falls. And you, you get into those situations where you realize, ah, you walk away, you don't realize the close calls that you don't even realize that you have. You know, you walk away from it, you go, ooh, that was, that was really stupid. You know, I can't believe we got out of that one, huh? You know, but, uh, but then when you see, you know, I've walked behind seven flag drape coffins mm. of guys I knew. I've not been on a scene of a firefighter fatality, but I've seen the aftermath of it and studied it. And when I was on the union executive board, actually it was after the athletic club, uh, was when we really started looking at safety heavy. Uh, and I was asked, well, it was kind of one of those things. I was asked to be on the safety committee. Uh, I was active in the union. Uh, they knew I had some experience and some training. I was working on my degree and everything, and they wanted young guys to come in. So Greg Rimke was a safety chief at the time. He said, hey, I want you to be on this committee. So we had our first committee meeting, and I was on the back of the ladder seven at the time, and we got a run. And when I came back, I found out I was the chair of the health and safety committee. So don't leave a committee meeting when they're appointing the chair because when you come back, you find out you're the chair of it. So from very early on, I've chaired the health and safety committee. And that led me into studying a lot, even before NIOSH reports and things like that. Uh, firefighter fatalities, firefighter injuries, looking into what happened, you know, what went wrong. It's always the same common theme of what went Communication's wrong. Communication's always the top one. Oh, yeah, yeah. Poor incident command, poor decision-making, inadequate resources, not reading the building. I mean, you, it's, it's just straight down the line. It's the same thing every time. And But I, it brought me into being involved with the international as far as safety, uh, getting being certified as a safety officer, getting involved in the Safety Officers Association and everything. So I, I have a real safety-conscious approach to everything that I do because it's just kind of the basis of, of where, even before I was an officer, you know, I had that fed into me. Wow. That's actually really cool to think about and sit back because I'll ride the seat <clears throat> every once in a while where I'm at. And I'm always trying to think forward. I'm always trying to think two or three hit steps ahead because I, that's what I've always been told yeah. from my senior officers or even just my own personal officers, and I always want to be my best. And I'm always trying to – after I, I do what I end up doing, which sometimes it's a good thing, sometimes it's not the greatest thing in the world, but yeah. that's how I learn. But I'm always sitting there trying to think, like, what is my battalion thinking? Like, what is going through his head, and what is he seeing? Am I not painting a good enough picture, or am I painting a good enough picture for him but just not doing the correct actions? So with the question on that, or with that statement, my question is what do you expect – from your rideout officers. Now, I think you guys do it a little bit differently up there at Indianapolis. You guys still have like roaming lieutenants that will come in if an if a other lieutenant is out. If or? if we uh, there's a couple different things. If okay. we have just made a lot of promotions mm-hmm. and there's not enough spots or they haven't put in spots, we'll have roving officers. It's okay. not a standard thing that we do have that, uh, but occasionally we do have extra officers. Or if we're calling in overtime, it's officer for officer mm-hmm. that will come in and fill the officer spot. Um, but we do have, uh, second officers that ride out and more often than not, it's a backstep person that moves up. Okay. That's what I think as well. I, the, the number one thing is hopefully the regular officer 
has mm-hmm. trained his backstep firefighters uh, or her backstep firefighters into this is what I expect. So it's it's a seamless transition. You move up and you do whatever your office normal officer would have done. Um, they work pretty closely and close knit together. Um, when I, I mean, I, I'm aware of who's catching the seat is what we call it. Who's catching the seat that day. I'm aware if it's not a regular officer and we've got enough safety net around it. Our safety chief knows, uh, my XO knows, uh, the XO is a really vital part to get in. So if we've got younger people that don't have a whole lot of experience, if we've got a, a you know, five, six, eight year private that's catching a seat and has got like maybe two probationary people on the back step, you know, those dynamics are, you know, it's a lot of stress on that person to have them watch two people that aren't, you know, they got the regular crew there, then, you know, it, like I said, it's seamless, it's fine. But you got a couple of subs there, you got a couple of probationary people there, overtimers from another shift that you don't know. A lot of times we'll have the XO kind of, hey, snuggle up with that crew and, you know, make sure they're doing mm-hmm. okay. Uh, but you do watch out for that. You do want to know what their assignment is and that they're following their assignment and that their, you know, radio reports are coming back. They're nice and smooth. And it's like, yeah, we're on the second floor. Everything's looking good. Whatever it is they're telling so you. So their reins are a little bit tighter. Yeah. You kind of keep likely. a closer eye on them because it's, it's just an experience thing. Mm-hmm. It's not that I don't trust them. It's not that I don't like them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it just is, you know, this is a situation you get presented with and you have to deal with this. And, uh, but y- you know, when your regular officers are there and, versus when you've got somebody riding out. How do you keep your, your composure on a fire ground? I've heard a couple of your radio transmissions. I don't need to talk about all of them. <laughs> I've heard, unless you want to talk oh, about them. Oh, no, i got a couple world-famous ones that uh, I may What are not, a couple uh, of the ones that are pretty famous? You can go ahead and mention it. <laughs> oh, Lord, I don't know. I yelled at an ambulance crew a couple of weeks ago. It just kind of came out. And, yeah, I got the uh, call from the shift commander. It said, hey, uh, watch what you're saying on the radio. I said, okay, boss, sorry. Uh, we've had uh, – I, I tend to, on the radio, um, say what's on my mind. And every now and then it, it slips out, and I realize that that wasn't very professional. I probably shouldn't have said that. And but at and, least it sounded good coming and, out. Though. Well, well, I, I get a lot of texts, a lot voice. of that was awesome. It's like, oh no, it really wasn't. I hope the chief wasn't listening. And then you go to the thing and you look down, and there's Chief Maloney was listening. You're like, oh no, I'm gonna hear about this one. But uh, it, it's I think it comes with experience. Uh, you know, like I was saying, it, my mm-hmm. first fire was a garage fire. I'm like, ah, it's no big deal. It's a garage fire. I mean, I wasn't excited about it at all because I had 10 years in the fire service. And so once you've been, you know, on the Cosmopolitan fire, the Bemis bag fire, plastics company at 21st and Linwood, fresh cuts, home lumber, you know, you go through all the second, third alarm plus fires that you've had in your career and you pull up and it's a couple of rooms going in a house. You just don't get very excited about it anymore. Uh, you're doing your job and you're doing what you can do, but you also realize that as, as excited as you may be on some level, you know, I always say there's three levels of, of, we respond to chaos. Everything we do is chaos. People don't call you because they're having a great day. They call you because their life's screwed up right now and they can't fix it. And, you know, that, like that one video, they, there's no nine, there's no 10 one, one, there's just nine one, one. It's us, you know I mean? That's it. So if you're not cool, calm and collected, the whole scene's going to go to hell. Mm-hmm. You've just got to, you just got to maintain your, yourself. And, and you, you just kind of get into that rhythm of, Try to be monotone. I always tell everybody that you have to sound like Chuck Yeager if you've ever seen the movie uh, The Right Stuff. Great movie about the uh, uh, astronauts. Oh, God, you got to check this thing out. Yeah, it's a fantastic movie. It's about the uh, 
astronauts in the early 60s in the uh, pre-Apollo program, Gemini program, I think. I can't remember which one it was now. But uh, he had this southern Texas drawl, and he always talked on the radio. It's like, well, you know, when planes going in, you know, <laughs> and, and you hear pilots today. And that's exactly how they talk. It's the Chuck Yeager voice. Mm-hmm. So when you hear a plane, it's like, yeah, we've lost both. Well, like Sullenberg, when, mm-hmm. he, when he landed, we'll be in the Hudson. You know, it was just, it's like, your plane's crashing in a river, dude. You know, and he's just like, yep, yeah, no, we're not going to make the airport. We're going to be in the Hudson. Just as calm as can be. It's the Chuck Yeager voice. So you command a fire, you've got to have that Chuck Yeager voice. Because if you start screaming into the radio, you turn into Peter Panic and you're yelling at people and everything else. You can just see your whole scene go to hell because nobody knows what's happening around you. You know, they're just looking at the radio and going, Chief must be pissed. He's screaming into the radio. It's like, no, 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 no. You'll know when I'm pissed. We'll talk about it when we get back to Firehouse. But right now, you know, I need you to move your line, you know, and I need you to get a ladder over here. You just got to maintain because everything's based on your composure as a chief. And if you lose your cool, then your scene's going to go to hell. I'm just thinking of times when I've had officers before. I've worked for other officers where they start screaming. I always find that funny. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like, yeah. I'm looking at you, bud. They'll, they'll get a calm down from me. I guess, uh, calm down. I guess I'm on my own now. <laughs> yeah. All right. I just looked at the guy next to me. I'm like, we're on our own, buddy. <laughs> yeah. He's yelling. Yeah. Yeah. So it's whatever. Yeah. That's actually really good. I'm, I know for the one fire that I had that was first in, my very first one, that's, that kept going through my head 100 times before we even got there was calm, cool, collective. Sound like I've been there. Mm-hmm. I wasn't there before. Like I never yeah. was there before. Yeah. As Steve Dillman always told me that, I just pretend that you've done it a thousand times. So I, I took a big deep breath and <sighs> fire control engine I three. And then they're like, you're a little too quiet. I'm like, I was shit in my pants. <laughs> I, I, mean, I go back to my I volunteer was days. Really trying to sound as cool as I could. And, and the first time in, in Lawrence, I, I really cut my teeth out there. I did a lot of work out there. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of residence fires, trailer fires, like the five million trailer fires out there, small you know strip malls and things like that. That's what Lawrence is inundated with. But did a lot of work out there and, and learned from a lot of really good firefighters. Um, but I can remember the first few that we went on. We had a big old residence fire, and I can remember standing there and. I realize now I'm really a fireman. You know, I'm, I'm not a scout. I'm not a junior. I'm not, you know, just here to help pick up hose. I, but I got to go in now, you know, and I can remember my knees were shaking so bad. I thought, I, I don't know if I can do this or not. I, this is looking really rough right now. It's like, it, it's hot in here. It's, it's hotter than I thought it would be in here, you know, in a real fire and you're pushing in on it and everything. And those guys are pushing you in and, and yeah, it, it's, it's terrifying uh, your first few times. Wow. How do you stay motivated at the job? We were talking earlier, you've got 45 years total in the fire service. Every day when you're getting up to go into work, what motivates you? Everything that I have in my life, I owe to the fire department of the city. Um, I mean, I grew up youngest of five kids. Uh, We didn't have a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of. I wouldn't say we were poor, but uh, we didn't have a lot. Uh, and to look at what I have today, um, I, I, I owe it to the job. And, and I, those guys raised me at the 28s. They were, they were my dads. I had 12 dads. Uh, I, had a, I probably had 100 dads throughout mm-hmm. the fire department. They took me horseback riding. They took me fishing. They took me camping. Cool. They got me out of the inner city and away from you know what I'd grown up with. And to this day are still close friends of mine, a lot of them. Uh, and 
just giving back what it's given me is enough motivation, but it's just still fun. I mean, I, that Whitestown called me, uh, my buddy Dave Owens, my old back mm-hmm. step brother, Larry Sims, a training chief up here, and he said, you want to be the keynote speaker at our awards banquet? And I said, who, who the hell wants to hear me talk? He goes, oh, these guys, you'll be great. Just come up and talk, you know, duty, service, all this. You know what to say. And I said, I don't know what the hell to say. to award. I've never talked to an awards banquet before. You know, a keynote speaker, mm-hmm. this idiot? Now, oh, come on. <laughs> I went up and I talked to him, and, and, and I told him, I said, you need to remember your first day on the job when you hung your gear on the rig, and you step back and you looked at it, and your name was on the bottom of that coat. You thought, that's my riding position, and I'm a, I'm a career firefighter now. I mean, remember that fantastic feeling that you had. I've never lost that. I get up in the morning and smile, and i got to go to work today. I'm going to retire in 2025 probably. I don't really know what I'm going to do with myself after that, but uh, uh, I, I just look forward to it. I Guys at the firehouse are great. You know, it's fun when you go. Uh, I still look forward to going to fires. Uh, I, I can I can feel retirement kind of coming on, but it's not really hard to motivate myself at all because it's just such a huge part of my life. It just it is, is what I am. Do you have any tattoos? No, I do not. You should go get sleeved out. <laughs> Whenever you retire, you just have sleeves. Yeah, uh, I know it's the thing and these then, days. And then but, you'd just be a tattoo guy. Yeah, I could. I could just, yeah, I can see me as I'm 70 years old covering tattoos. That'd be great. Yeah. That'd be cool. <laughs> and then you can do a radio show. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what you Absolutely. Do. Sit around and talk about nothing. So. Hey, people will listen to you. I mean, I, I'm beginning you to You got a good that. voice, people will listen. Yeah, they don't listen believe to me, it. but... <laughs> My wife doesn't even listen yeah. to me. It's oh, right. well, that's that's a chronic condition that <laughs> all of us uh, are affected with. <laughs> that's so true. Uh, how do you motivate others to be as excited or as happy as you will be at the fire service? I, I, th- I think if you're going to be an officer or a leader, mm-hmm. we always like to use the word yeah. leader. You know, I mean, go to Barnes & Noble and stand in the leader development aisle. There it's like, there's like millions of books, and it's mm-hmm. like – you just, you have to be what you profess to be. You know, uh, uh, Shakespeare said that I know self be true. Understand who you are and what you are. Uh, and you, especially as you go up through the ranks, anything that you do when you get involved in something, you know, when I ask for a volunteer for a committee and you step forward and there's 50 people standing behind you, well, your back's open to all of them. You know, mm-hmm. some are going to like you, some aren't going to like you, just nothing you, you can deal with. But you get involved in it, stay involved in it, work hard at it. Um, be the officer you want them to be. You know, if you tell somebody this is exactly how I, you, I want you to act, this is how I, mm-hmm. what I expect from you on a fire scene, what I expect from you in a firehouse, uh, be that person. You can't turn around and... and you know, not, not what's the old phrase for parents, uh, don't do as I say, or don't do as I do, do as I say. Uh, you can't do that. I mean, you've got you to gotta live clean. Uh, you've got to work hard. I still don't mind getting up into uh, hose beds of apparatus, you know, draining hose and reloading hose, uh, helping guys, you know, pick up uh, tools, clean tools and stuff like that. I had a chief once tell me, he goes, yeah, you start mopping floors around here, the guys aren't going to respect you. And I thought you don't know firefighters very well. No. <laughs> yeah, but you, you take that high and mighty position. Well, I'm a battalion chief now, and you probably know the guys that are like that. And it's like, yeah, you're just an idiot with three bugles. Mm-hmm. You know, that's all you are. And if you take that kind of an attitude towards people. But you maintain, you know, training, keep training, mm-hmm. 
keep learning, keep understanding. Uh, 45 years in, I can break classes down into uh, thirds. A third of them, you're going to go in, you're going to learn something. You're going to man, this guy really had his shit together. I, mm-hmm. I just learned something. Third of them, you're going to, yeah, you might pick up a thing or two, but it's going to reinforce what you know. And then a third of them, you realize this guy doesn't know freaking clue what he's talking about this teaching this class he's an idiot and uh, you learn that but it's because you know the job you know mm-hmm. so you keep training and you keep keep up with modern principles modern techniques uh smile uh love the job show up early go home late uh stay involved on committees and different things so you maintain that type of presence and people know that they can rely on you they know you're dependable you maintain a decent reputation uh People will want to either work for you or be like you. You know, it's like when I when I become a lieutenant, I want to be like mm-hmm. this guy. I become a captain, I want to be like this gal. I want to be, you know, that person when, when I grow up. Um, and so I think just living your life dedicated to the fire service and working hard motivates people around you. I tell you what, it goes a long way from being a, a black helmet guy like me goes a long way when a chief comes in and starts helping out, putting hose up, cleaning tools. Oh, yeah. Jumping on the truck, oh, yeah. helping out. Yeah. It's it's like a – it's a pretty cool reminder that it's not that he's just a chief, that he's he was in the same spot I was 15, 20 years before, and well, maybe in 30 years before. It, and I'll tell you the correlation there is is the person that gets the bar or the bugle that does the big me, little you mm-hmm. thing. They weren't worth a damn as a fireman. <laughs> they they were horrible as a fireman. It almost always correlates back to that. But they let the chief that'll come in and you look over and you go, "Oh my God, chief's got give me that mop, chief." It's like get away from me, you know. You take my he was probably a pretty good fireman. <laughs> it's just it's just a correlation there. I don't know why it works that way. What values do you hold close to you in the fire service and in your personal life? Uh Boy, that's a that's a huge question. Um, you can take it as long as you want. You can think about that as long as you want. I think honesty is probably number one on the list. Uh, you can only bullshit people so far, and when you realize that firefighters have nothing to do outside of runs and basic duties, but to sit around a firehouse for twenty four hours and think mm-hmm. and talk to each other and call other firehouses and say, Hey, the chief came in here and said this. It's like, Oh, you didn't tell us that. You know, you, you start getting to where you say something about somebody or something and it gets back, you know, you've got to be honest. You got to own up to that. And, and, and that leads into being steady, uh, being consistent uh, with how you deal out everything on, 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 from discipline to everything else. Uh, you've got, you got to treat everybody fair. You got to take care of everybody. My, my biggest thing is to take care of the people mm-hmm. that work for me and fight fires. That's, that's the number one thing. Like I said, go home, shift change, smile and say, see you next day. You get to that point. You've had a successful day in the fire service. You can screw up. I mean, leaders make mistakes, but leaders lead people through those mistakes. Mm-hmm. And if you make a mistake, own up to it. You know, if you tell somebody something that's wrong, you go back to me and say, hey, dude, I'm sorry, I, that was wrong. Uh, I thought, 
you know, what I'd heard, you know, some policy or something coming down. Because if, if you if you try to stick with your mistake or you try to start pointing fingers at other people and you start making excuses, those guys just sit there and shake your head because they're going to walk away from you. You're going to think, yeah, bullshit them. They really believe that. They're going to go into the kitchen. They're going to go, what an asshole. <laughs> I mean, they're going to all go, now this is what he said. You know, they're all eyes are on you all the time. So you just have to, to be honest, be dependable, be consistent, be reliable. Um, they know coming in that this is how you're going to react. Um, everybody gets along great, and I mean, it just it 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 it, it just works. It just works. Who's been a huge mentor for you in the fire service? Oh man, in the fire! I, I'm service. sure there's been a lot, Woo. but who's been? Uh, you can name a few of them if you'd like. Uh, yeah, I'll have to go through a couple different departments. And uh, well, I tell you, the biggest mentor I ever had in my life, and you're gonna laugh at this. The 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 the, the one that really kind of set me on the path was my old principal at St. Joan of Arc Grade School, Sister Joseph. Really? Yeah. And, and uh, <laughs> go ahead and laugh. Make all. I've been pounded for this my entire life. That's right. I ain't laughing. Uh, she. Uh, oh no, you will. Uh, she made me captain of the school safety patrol. I Are was, you serious? Yeah. I was, school, I was. I know this sounds ridiculous, but I was a school safety patrolman at Forty Second Ruckel, and I took I took my job seriously, getting the kids back and forth across you the street. Get a vest? No. Uh, no, well, we had a, a, a sash. Uh, yeah, they had one of those sashes, one of those white sashes with a pin. And she got That's mad awesome. at the, uh, awesome. I was in sixth grade, and she got mad at the eighth graders and took the captain away and gave it to a seventh grader that screwed it up. And I just happened to be in her office one day, and she took the badge she had at me, and she says, Here, you're captain of the safety patrol. And I went, but I'm only in the sixth grade. She goes, did I ask what grade you were in? I said, no, sister. So I was captain of school safety patrol, seventh and eighth grade. And uh, that was, she gave me that little bit of responsibility. And, yeah. and I'm like, I, I mean, I just saw her scream at these eight, seventh and eighth grade. I, I got to do a good job, you know? So uh, that was my first command role in school safety <laughs> patrol. But when I got on Lawrence, there were, uh, there were several people that were out there. I, I think they, uh, they, they saw something in me, I guess you could say, yeah, I, I don't know what that is, but uh, a lot of the chiefs that were out there, there was George Bragdon and Bob Nevitt, uh, Chuck McCoy, senior, uh, uh, Paul Domi, uh, all of them. I mean, I got along great with all of them. Uh, and then it was Mike Bray was probably Mike just passed away a couple weeks ago, uh, the 11th, September 11th, we've got his memorial service. But Mike was probably one of the biggest ones because he was just, he's just rock solid. I mean, he worked 61 years for the same company. Wow. I'm telling you about the consistency and the yeah. fairness and not lose. I probably learned a lot of that from Mike in my very early career. Uh, never yelled at anybody. You could tell when he got mad. His face mm -hmm. flushed a little bit. His lip kind of twitched, and he'd look really stern at you, but he'd never yell at you, and he would explain to you how you screwed up and how you got to fix it. That's and then it was done. You know, he, he never came back, and it never was an I told you so or anything like that. But he was a big part of the junior program. You know, some of the uh, mentors didn't come out and help us. You knew you could always call Mike, you know, hey, so-and-so didn't show up today. Can you come out and train? And he'd drop everything he was doing and come out and train. Uh, and he... Uh, knew his job he was like a volunteer fireman for 50 plus years and and uh lived in the same house all the entire thing you talk about a rock steady american individual this guy was it uh guy you want to be and uh he he actually worked at the motor speedway on the fire crew out there really? and i was working at eight ambulance and uh, had left Lawrence and was on Pike and I was on one of those golf carts and they, they had those banana suits, those bright yellow mm -hmm. eight ambulance suits. And I'm driving across the infield on a cart and he steps out. He goes, what are you doing? And I said, Hey Mike, how you been? I hadn't seen him for a year or two. And he goes, 
what are you doing? I said, I'm working for eight ambulance out here. He goes, you working race day? And I said, no. He goes, yeah, you are. I said, what am I doing? He said, well, you're a pit fireman. I said, I'm a what? He said, you're going to be a pit fireman. He says, go over to the administration building, see Rose or whatever the lady's name was, and said, get a badge, get a shirt, get a parking pass, and be here at 0500 on race day. I said, what am I going to do? He goes, I just told you you're going to be a pit fireman. I said, okay. I had no idea what that was. So bring your turnout gear. I said, okay. So I parked in the coke lot and walked about five miles down to the firehouse, and he said, okay, you're going to have a, a Gary Bentonhausen's pit. I said, really? He goes, yeah. He said, well, i tell you. Is there anything I need to know? Should I have like had training for anything like that? He goes, no, 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 no. He says, it's just a fire. Put it out. He goes, they've had a couple of fires in their pits this year, so be careful up there. He goes, don't turn your back to the north. I said, okay. He goes, the best advice I can give you. So I go <laughs> walking up to my pit, and I'm standing there looking around. I thought, don't turn your back to the north. What the hell does he mean by that? And So I was the primary fireman. You go over the wall at the time, and you'd stand on their right rear tire, and if they had a fire, you hit them with the extinguisher and put it out. They'd come in for the pits. Of course, it's just absolute chaos. Pits, mayhem, cars and everything going everywhere. And I remember standing there, and I heard the crowd go, <gasps> you know, there's a collective thing, and I thought, Something must have happened, and I look up, and about that time, a tire off Teo Fabi's car lands right next to me and bounces down the pits. There'd no been a wreck way. behind me. He'd pulled out without the tire on, and I thought, and I look back, I thought, I'm looking north. <laughs> Never turn your back to the north. Thanks, Mike. I get it. I get it now. I understand what you're saying, but he was always just, uh, and, and he got me on the fire crew out there, and I worked out there from early 80s 84 yeah it was before i got on because i couldn't work the 85 race because i was in the academy at ifd so 83 84 i got on there and then in 2000 i started traveling with the uh, indycar safety team started traveling around the world with those really? guys yeah and what's mike, been like? mike got me in a, a what what's that been like oh i I, I, I stopped in 18 when i turned 60 it's just <laughs> too old too slow to be out on a racetrack with cars flying around you but uh Oh, it was awesome. I mean, we traveled. I've been to Japan, Sao Paulo, really? all across Canada, all across the U.S., uh, traveling with them, being the – it's the AMR safety team mm-hmm. now, working with those guys. It was – did it for 18 seasons. It was fantastic. What was some cool stuff that you got to see doing that? Uh, well, the travel. Um, well, been to Japan five times, six times, uh, and just being part of the show. Uh, I, I, I missed it. 19, I didn't do anything out there. And then I went out last year and applied. Now I'm a tour guide at the, at the Speedway Museum. So I got to be back on 16th Street doing something. But uh, it, it uh, just, you got to know the drivers. I mean, you'd sit around and talk to Elio Castro and Evas. Penske would let us come by their uh, uh, hospitality tent. We'd sit down and eat lunch. And you know, Elio would come over and sit down and talk to us. And you got, you know, Minister Penske would come up and say, say hey, how you guys doing today? We're doing great. And you know, celebrities yeah. that would be around at all the things. And we went out to Long Beach, and there were all kinds of actors. And I'm not big into movies for the most part. So, you know, they'd all go, oh, that's so-and-so and so-and-so. I'd go, oh, who's that? They'd go, oh, that's the star of something, something. Ah, okay, fantastic. You know, I don't know who that person is. But we did meet the guy from Storage Wars, Dave, whatever his name is. Oh, did you really? Yeah, yeah. We looked yeah. out, and he was standing out there. Hey, I know that guy. I watched Storage Wars when I got pictures taken with him. So it was just just traveling with the, with the show. I was kind of like Barnum and Bailey, you know, set them up and do the race and then get on a jet and fly back home. It was it was an, a unique experience. It was a lot of fun. And all of that, all of that that I had was from Mike Bray. Really? Yeah, and Lawrence. And then, what a blessing. Then when I got on IFD, oh, a true, true mm. blessing to know him. Just a great man. Uh, and then when I got on IFD, uh, Harry Tibbetts was our uh, training chief. 
and Harry was a huge early influence in my career. I don't know if you know Harry at all. I've he's, heard that name. Oh, yeah. I've heard that a, name. never met him, but I've heard you, that name. He ought to sit in this chair one day. Really? Yeah, yeah, you ought to get a hold of Harry. He'd be, he's, he's got some great stories. <laughs> he's a lot of fun. Uh, and truly, you know, he just uh, he knew the job, very dedicated mm-hmm. to the job, probably even more so than I am, loved it. He's second generation. His brother was on. Uh, and uh, good instructor, good insight. Uh, safety-oriented guy, even wearing his mask back in the '60s when nobody else did, really? kind of thing. Yeah, he was he was sharp. So, through the academy and everything, and I ended up working for him. He was down in battalion. Well, it's battalion seven now. It was three at the time, uh, and I was at seven. So I had I got to work for him some. Got to drive him a couple of times, which was great. Harry was awesome. Uh, a lot of the chiefs I worked for. Uh, John Gregory was my shift commander when I first went on. I can remember wanting to go on the A shift because everybody I knew on IFD was on the A shift. Mm-hmm. And uh, they told me, last shift on earth, you want C shift. You don't want to work for Gregory. He's an asshole. And I said, oh, he is? Okay. And uh, I, I got on, and uh, I finished uh, third in the academy. Uh, and Congratulations. He, he walked in. Yeah, one Less than one half a point separated the top three guys. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, he came in. He goes, who's your top four guys? And they said, well, you know, it was uh, – me and Mike Hamilton, Daryl Hayden, uh, and somebody else. I can't remember who it was right now. And he goes, I'll take them. And I went, no, 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 no. They said, if you finish high enough, you can pick your shift. <laughs> I finished third. I got to pick my shift. And they said, no, you don't. Chief Gregory wants you on his shift. And I thought, oh, my God. I mean, I thought, I can't go work for this guy. I, I, how soon can you switch shifts? And they said, never, kid. Go on to see shift. I thought, oh, this is going to be horrible. Great dude. Really? The people that didn't like him were the people that didn't work. You know, they were the people that he just, you know, called in sick, called mm-hmm. off, took hit days, sloughed around at the fires and stuff like that. But if you worked hard, you showed up for the firehouse, you didn't, you didn't, you never ended up in his office over anything or somebody calling and saying, Hey, we got this kid. We want him out of here. Uh, officers would call and say, Hey, we got this kid. We want to keep him. When you got that kind of a reputation, he treated you like gold. Now he would beat on you. He would curse at you. He would put you in headlocks and try to choke you out. He was that guy. I saw him just a couple of years ago. He's been retired for a while now. He was at the Menards on uh, Emerson Avenue, and I walked up. He was checking out. He had a grocery cart stuffed with fifty-five pound things of dog food. I guess he's got big dogs. I don't know. But I walked up and looked. And I said, "Hey, Chief, how you doing?" He said, "F you." And a little girl behind the counter looked at him, looked at me, and was like, "Wow, you know." And I said cooking for the family tonight. He, he came around and he punched me right in the middle of the chest and I about went down. I mean, he took the breath away from me and the girl behind the counter screamed. She, ah! I said, it's okay. It's me all the time. It's no big deal. But I came to absolutely love the man because he, brilliant tactician, brilliant firefighter. Uh, he was second generation. His son, John's third. And they've, they just hired uh, Stephen, I think is his uh, grandson. So it's the first fourth generation family that I know. But I learned so much from him uh, on, on guts, you know, on, on when mm-hmm. to and when not to get after it. And, and, and just, just, you knew he had your back. You knew he wasn't going to do anything stupid when he was running a fire. And then his good friend uh, was a battalion chief, Carl Eubner, when I was at the twelves and then some, when I was at the sevens, we ran in a lot with him and another hell of a chief, another hell of a fireman, old truck man. And you went to a truck and he automatically loved you. You know, he, mm-hmm. he just, he was awesome. And I mean, I've had good company. I've always had great company officers anywhere I've been. Mark Oster was my boss at engine 12. Uh, went down the ladder seven and I had a bum rap. Mark rap was my Lieutenant down there. Uh, just always worked with good officers and good people. And, uh, the, it just, those were the guys that really 
formed me as a firefighter and then into an officer. Wow. You've had quite the experience in that. No, it's been so much fun. It's, I mean, I can't even tell you. It's just fantastic. It's great. For speaking on firehouse etiquette, what are some things that you expect to see for a new guy? Let's say there might be some new guys that might watch this. Yeah. Something for them to look forward to when they're out in the streets. They, they drill them pretty hard in the academy, and they get even harder on them than what they should. Uh, but you got to start out some kind of a you know, square. What I, what I would tell young guys is be early. You know, or, uh, on time is, is late. Uh, you know, late, inexcusable, uh, early is on time. Uh, be early. Be one of the first guys to the firehouse. Even if you don't have a key to the firehouse, just wait in the parking lot till somebody you know let you in or gives you the door code or whatever it is you need to get in. Uh, check out your rig. Know what your assignment is that day. Know what side of the rig you're on. Have your stuff squared away. All your gear, your mask, everything else. Nothing looks worse than to get a run and not have your stuff on a rig or not have mm-hmm. your face piece connected or not have your mask checked out and something goes wrong with it. Get yourself squared away with everything that you've got. Know where everything's at on that apparatus. Know what side the first aid equipment's on. Know, you know, where the gated Y is. Know, ask yourself a question. Okay, they're going to ask me, you know, where are the irons? And you don't want to run around and start opening up compartments mm-hmm. until you find it. Know that apparatus inside and out. It only takes a few minutes, and there's usually a senior guy there that's going to help you. You know, to catch you and say, here, or the officer. Somebody's going to engineer. Somebody's going to take you around and show you that rig and where everything's at on it. Know it and study it. After lunch, go back out and walk around it again. Because that's the worst reputation that you can get is if you fail on an incident scene and you fail because you just weren't prepared. Just didn't know. You didn't take the time to know where something was on that rig. And then to pitch in, you know, sometimes uh, these subs and young kids, they get underneath your feet. You know, it's like, no, no, I got this. I got this. I'll wish that plate cheap. Get away from me. You know, it's it's always good to answer the phone and make the Mm -hmm. coffee and do all the things that you're supposed to do. Uh, That's all good stuff. Uh, But really, if you're not personable, and I don't mean you have to ground, shake everybody's hand and sit down and say, hey, chief, can you tell me? You know, you can yeah. tell when it's contrived conversation versus, you know, just let the conversation come to yourself. You know, let them ask about you. We always do. You're from here. We're in the military. They ask all the basic questions. What high school did you go to? You're married. You got kids. You know, let all that, let all that just kind of naturally happen. But come in and be prepared to work and work hard. Stick with your officer uh, and do what's told. With you having all the all the experience at the firehouse, has there ever been any times that you've seen some pranks that were actually some pretty good ones? Oh Lord, yes. <laughs> oh yeah. I was trying to find uh, a way to ask that professionally. Yeah, I, 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 I got to tell you, it's been a couple of years ago, but one of the <laughs> one of the best that I saw. Don't do this at home, kids. Uh, <laughs> we had a guy. I won't say the names. I won't even say the station. I'll just say what happened. That took juice out of a jalapeno jar oh, and God. painted the toilet seat. <laughs> well, he was, he was trying to get his brother because he thought his brother, you know, was, was going to go in and do yeah. his morning constitution, but he got the ladder chauffeur <laughs> and we got a run or a fire somewhere. And, and we came back from it and this poor guy was walking through the firehouse. I said, what's wrong with you? He goes, 
my ass is on fire. He goes, I don't know. He goes, my ass is burning. He goes, I don't know. I got to go take a shower. And I thought, well, do you get something at the fire? He goes, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. So he got up and he took a shower and he looked down and he had a perfect ring around his butt from the toilet. And so he figured out, you know, somebody, he didn't know what it was, but they found out later what they had done. That was one of the better ones that I'd seen in a while. That, that one cracked me up. But I mean, there, there's been some stuff. Uh, we just, uh, the packing peanuts in the locker. This was another good one when Larry came over to drive mm-hmm. me. The guy's... I had a cookout at my house. Of course, they got busted. Uh, they, they're walking down the middle of my cul-de-sac with this about eight-foot-tall thing of packing peanuts. As Larry pulls up, and he's going, what are you doing with those? He goes, uh, moving. And then they thought, moving. So he's, yeah, he knew something yeah. was up. So he, he'd been watching for a while to see what would happen. And the shift before he came, it took three of them to open up his locker. And I mean, they put that entire thing of packing peanuts into his locker. And we had to take like razor blades and cut out the ones that were showing so you couldn't see them on the outside. And I don't know how those doors stayed closed on the thing. It should have exploded. And uh, we come back in the next day and I've got my, my phone and I'm filming up over the top of my locker to film when he opens it. And he opens it up and he goes, oh, man. He goes, they got me. And I thought, what the hell happened? So I looked around from my locker and it's like, what happened? He goes, well, somebody put packing peanuts in there. I thought, they put a hell of a lot more than that in there. <laughs> so I walk out and I went, what happened? He goes, what do you mean what happened? I said, it didn't explode. And well, what happened? I said, there's packing peanuts in there, but not all the ones. Well, we figured somebody must have opened his mm-hmm. locker, yeah, but nobody was saying a word off the other ships. Really? So one guy went out and he looked in a trash can. There was a huge trash bag, two of them full of these packing peanuts. said, yeah, I got somebody else. So it took <laughs> us a while before we figured out what was the battalion chief on the B ship <laughs> that had a, somebody left a uh, shirt out and he thought it was this guy's locker. So mm-hmm. he opened it up and he was up to his waist in packing <laughs> peanuts. So he went and got a sub. He says, don't you tell anybody this. So they cleaned it all up, never said a word to anybody <laughs> until it got back around. It's like, okay, who got the packing peanuts? <laughs> so, but there was, uh, well, I opened the door to my buggy one day and there was a chicken in the front seat. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it's, it's just a never ending parade of shenanigans. I mean, there's always something That's going awesome. on. They tape those little pop things to the bottom of your boots, those mm-hmm. snap pop things. So when you put them on, you start to walk, your feet are exploding and it's, it's, yeah, you gotta, you gotta keep your head on a swivel. And, and for the most part, chiefs are off limits, but they, they still every now and then they, they get me. <laughs> what has been your most memorable fire that you've had either in the command position or safety, or in the fire operation side, or you can do each wow. one. Oh matter. man, I, I could go all night talking fires. You uh, are more than welcome to. Couple of them, probably. I, I guess the biggest one I've ever been on is not really the most memorable, but they were both huge. I'd, I'd say the biggest one I was ever on was a Cosmopolitan fire down on the canal. I was safety chief. We were. At Old Sevens there on Mass Avenue and shared quarters with the shift commander. So they got all the downtown boxes, but we didn't go till it was a working fire. I think it was Box 95 that went out and apartment fire at Michigan and Senate. And I was laying in my bunk. They took a care of, we were, they put a Murphy bed in a hallway full of filing cabinets. You know, nothing's too good for safety chiefs. Mm-hmm. And that's where we slept at night. And I was laying there in my bed and, and I thought, Michigan and Senate, there's no apartments there. I'm, you know, I, I thought North and Senate, you know, there's some, them, some three deckers up there and, and some railroad flats that, you know, we've done some work in. I said, but there's nothing in Michigan and Senate. And then I sat up and I thought, oh, Jesus, there. And before I could even think there's a big building under construction there, mm-hmm. it came out as a working fire. So I was going. Wow. 
And I went across Michigan Street, and I got to Capitol, and the cops had already blocked it off. And you, because of the downtown buildings and the lights, you really couldn't see. You know, you could see a glow and a smoke, and you know if something was happening. You know, it was big listening to the radio traffic. But cops had already blocked off Michigan Street, and I'm, I'm flying down, and, and they back their cars up. And they're looking. I'll never forget the looks on their faces. And I look between their cars, and this giant, it wasn't even an ember, it was the size of two or three basketballs, hits in the middle of Michigan Street and just explodes, and he showers. And so I stopped, and I looked out, and rolled down my window, I looked out, it was, I think it was in November, March, no, it was in March, I think it was in the spring, but it was cold. And I looked up, and there was this shower of sparks going completely over downtown, and I thought, well, I'm going to park my buggy you know kind of upwind from it and uh, so i i turned and went up capitol and the cops were all waving at me like it's this way I'm, i think they thought i was afraid it's like that guy's not even gonna go he's going the wrong way on capitol avenue but i went up and parked on north street and got out and you could see the globe but there was a parking garage and these other flats that i that, that, that were there so you really couldn't see the building itself very well so i got out got my tank and everything Parked my car out of the way. I knew we'd get a lot of apparatus. Last thing you need is a chief's buggy in somebody's way. So I parked about a half a block out of out of the zone. And I go walking up. And I got to the other side of the uh, parking garage. And it was a six-story building in the front, eight off the back down by the canal. And every floor was on fire. Wow. All six floors in the front. It was, it was a six-story lumberyard is what it was. And it was just walking through this building. And they had an inch and three quarter hand line out there spraying on it. And I just, I, I stepped around a corner, and the first thing I, I said was, "Holy shit!" I had never seen that much fire in my life, really, on any fire, and and moving like that. So I said, hey, "Let's uh, let's get some deck guns going here, fellas, and let's kind of like forget the little <laughs> line. You're just pissing it off." And so, and so uh, we went around, and uh, it's such a huge place. I, mean, I, I don't know, a whole city block wide and deep, and back in a whole. Uh, uh, the seaside of it was uh, the canal. So, I mean, there was no access off of that. It was just ripping from top to bottom. And uh, we got some deck guns going. I got a couple engines up there, and I called for another engine. I said, I need to get an aerial here. And I walked back around, and there was the entrance to the Watermark Condominiums. And I stood and looked down this long driveway, and you could just see the fire coming at us. And there were these beautiful condominiums that were there, right, built right up against the canal. They're probably a million dollars uh, a piece. And I wrote off the first one. I said, well, we're going to lose that one, and we're going to lose part of that one. I'm going to try to set up to where we can stop it at the third one. And I stepped inside the gate, and there was a lady standing there. She had holding on to a little Yorkie. I kind of nodded, and she's crying. And she goes, "Are you? can you save my house? And I said, which one's your house? And she pointed right at the one that I'd written <laughs> off. And I went, yeah. <laughs> I said, ma'am, we're going to die trying. I did my best John Wayne voice, and she went, oh. <gasps> And so I just walked by her. I thought, no, lady, we're gonna. You're just gonna be a heap of pile of burning ashes here in about 20 minutes. You might want to go somewhere else and not see this ugliness. You know, get you a hotel. Oh God, yeah, yeah. You need to call the Red Cross. We can get you someplace to stay. And but I walked down and I looked at it. and We had a favorable wind. I gotta say, and I hit incident command. Hit me and said, What do you need up there? Because you know we didn't have all the other chiefs in yet. So I found myself running this whole side of the fire instead of just doing safety. And I said, Well, if I get an aerial and an engine up here, I said, I think. We can we can make a stop. I think we can. So uh, it's in engine twenty three, which was still in Birdsville Parkway at the time. It came in the gate, and I thought, well, I got my engine. I said, go up there and hook up. And I said, I'll see if I can get an arrow. So I had to go down. There was a gated community, so we had to get the gate to where they could lock it open, find somebody to lock the thing. And I looked down the street. And I went to St. Clair. I can't remember the name of the street. It's one of those Wabash and one of those weird streets. His car's parked on one side. His gate wasn't very big. And I thought, well, I hope we get a smaller aerial in here. Well, here comes ones around a corner, you know, hundred foot tower ladder. It's like, God damn it, thing's not gonna fit. And Jerry. 
Royston drove that thing in there. I don't know how he did it. I thought, well, you're never going to get it out of here. I don't know how you got it in, but he did. He pulled it all the way in and set it up and had twin turrets on it and 23 supplied it. I think they had their deck gun going too, and they set up. So they had their twin turrets going, and then they took it. Lauren Twos was the Boston 23's engine, and they, and they took it down onto the canal and then got up. And if you look at the pictures of it, you know, you Google it, there's one little corner of the building, and then the watermark condominiums are right here. And there's only about 30, 40 feet between them. Really? And we we stopped it at those buildings. I mean, that was Custer's wow. last stand right there. I couldn't believe it. I mean, it blew out windows on the other side of the canal. We had another aerial set up on the other side of the canal. It got so hot, I think it melted its red light and broke its windshields. I mean, it was a hot fire. Uh, that was our end of it. I didn't even know what was going on in the other end of it. There were uh, uh, firebrands landing on top of the, of the state house. Uh, there was the um, Indiana Historical Society sat right there on, on the, the Michigan Street side of it, and it got into that. And there was a great stop there. The guys got in there and stopped that, tarped, and did everything. Turned out a guy from I went to high school with was brand the Indiana Historical Society. And he called me a few days after that fire. He says, man, your guys are fantastic. He goes, they saved everything in our building. He said, we saw that on the news and thought our building's gone. I said, well, Larry, it should have been. <laughs> but they did do a hell of a job down there. And we were there all night. It came out after midnight, 1, 2 in the morning. I remember where it was. But we got relieved at the scene and left, and it was still a good second alarm fire as we were pulling away. <laughs> so, you know, I hate to leave you fellas with all this work, but uh, the back end of it was still pretty much open and under construction while it burnt. But the front was starting to be wrapped. They were starting to finish compute, uh, apartments in there. You know, there was drywall and everything was up in it. And learned a lot about how fire advances in those lightweight trust buildings there's no rhyme or reason to it you know, it, it just takes the path of least resistance so it might run a channel for a little while and then hook and go a different direction so we learned a couple things on that fire is to pull ceilings as you go because you never know where the fire is going to happen uh, leave a backup person or have a backup line because fire can get under you or over you real quick i mean you never know where those channel fires take off on you where they're going to go next uh, the air conditioning units, they set them up over the hallways, the ex exact width of the hallway. I got a couple pictures of them that when the, the roof collapsed, the entire condensing unit came right down. These were big ones. I mean, like oh, big yeah. as this room, They're big huge. ones. And they smashed straight down in to those hallways. And if there had been in line or anybody in there, they'd have been cut off and there was no way out. Uh, and you just, when anything's under construction, you got to be careful. Because I went up in at one point in time, we were trying to advance in and find the fire. Uh, and I went into uh, uh, one of the apartments and got down on my knees. Smoke was starting to bank down. You, know, you can't see your feet get on your knees and get on my knees. And I went out. I just had this strange feeling <clears throat> something wasn't right. Mm -hmm. And I started feeling around. I just got a, like a different aura around me. I thought, man, that's something just changed, you know, in the environment. I don't know what that was. <clears throat> so I laid out and reached over the edge of it. And I thought, well, there's a hole there. I don't know what that is. So there was a found something. There was like a box. So I threw it. I never did hear it hit. I thought, I know I was on the fifth or sixth floor. I said, well, this goes way down. It must be an elevator shaft. So it was a balcony on the back side of the building. There was a courtyard on the inside of it. No railing or anything on it. If I'd have, if I'd have taken five more steps, I'd have gone five stories down into that courtyard. People wouldn't even know I was missing. They probably wouldn't have cared, but I, I would have. You know. So it, that, that was probably the biggest fire that I ever fought. But I think the most memorable was the Bemis Bag Fire. I was a private at Engine 12. And uh, we were eating lunch, uh, and the uh, 
you had to listen to the runs all day long. It came out and then we had like two channels, F1 and F2 that you could go to and came out on Barth Avenue, reported a building fire and then they marked it working. So we went on to F1 and we were hearing them call for extra company. And Bernie Egan was driving Carl Eubner at the time. And he went back around he goes, Hey, we're going to need at least two or three more aerials on this side of the building. We looked at each other and thought two or three more aerials. We got to be close to going to this. So we went over and looked out the window and I mean, the column of smoke was huge. And, uh, then they hit second alarm and we were on the second alarm and we had hose tenders at the time. They were old 1960s pickup trucks. They were really nice trucks, but they had an extra 1200 feet of two and a half inch hose on them. So Oster says, bring the, bring, bring the hose tender. I went, okay. So I got to drive this hose tender to the fire and we pulled right up to where the command post was and Chief Kimbrew, Chief Smith, Chief Greider, all those guys were there. And he said, where do you want us? And they were telling us to go around to the backside, supply an aerial, find a water source and everything else. I said, what, what do you want to do with the hose tender? And I remember Smitty looks over and he goes, park that damn thing over there out of the way. <laughs> the last run for Engine 12's hose tender. So uh, they took it out of service after that. But we got there and this thing was <clears throat> big old warehouse. It had been a bag paper bag manufacturing they were turning it into condominiums and apartments a little gentrification down there around garfield park and uh carl eubner was the battalion chief back on that side and and i asked him i said hey chief he says yeah i said i know this is big i said but how big is it said, you know your career how many how many you know, rate this fire and he stood there for the longest time. He didn't say anything. I thought, oh, well, that was a dumb question. He's probably thinking, this idiot kid. You know, it's big, kid. Just, you know, worry about it. And he finally goes, well, let me tell you, I, I've, I've seen two bigger. I said, yeah, which were they? He goes, grant fire and the high grades fire. And I thought, wow. I mean, those were, those were like historical yeah. fires. I'm like, wow. I said, it's a pretty good little fire than any. He goes, yeah, it's, it's a good fire. I said, okay. I said, all right. I remember I was on the Bemis bag fire. That is so cool. I can't really say anything. I've only had like, one or two big fires. That was really it. Yeah, really and, and and real. I, I always feel like I, I probably every generation feels like they're the last of the Mohicans. But I truly think I'm like the last yeah. of the Mohicans. Rode on the tailboard of an engine, worked off to, open I was cab axle. You if you've ridden on the back yeah, worked on open cab uh, max and open cab apparatus. Um, wore day boots. Uh, was back when you didn't wear a mask. Well, the masks were sixty pounds and they didn't work very well, so you didn't you know, didn't want to screw with them until they really got good masks. You know, I'm just the last of that kind of generation. Because I know the guys that raised me, the Steve Dillmans, Carl Eubner's, Harry Tibbetts. Those guys went through the fifties and the sixties and into the seventies before Indianapolis was really redone like it is now. So they got all those huge warehouse fires and they got the Grant fire and they got. We just don't get big fires like that anymore because. Mm -hmm. Well, one, they burn them all down, so there aren't a lot of them left. But the ones they didn't burn down have been completely redone with Circle Center Mall yeah. and with all the modernization of downtown and everything, all the building codes, which is a good thing. I mean, it's it's not a bad thing that your city isn't burning to the ground. But uh, that was the last of the Mohicans to really see a lot of those really big fires like that. They're just few and far between anymore. Mm -hmm. Still get you know plenty of residents for it. We still work, you know, yeah. but, but just those big all-night, two- or three-day fires, we just don't get them like that anymore. How would your crews describe you as a leader? Oh, uh, I don't know. Uh, I guess you'd have to. I, I guess they like working for me because there's not a lot of movement in my battalion, and, mm -hmm. and there's people that are something opens up. You got five or six guys stomping over each other to try to get into it. So that's uh, I take that as a compliment. You know that people want to work for you. So I would assume if you would ask them, they'd probably tell you I was a competent guy that takes care of them. I. I, I hope they like. I, I've always said you, 
take a hundred firefighters, line them up outside of a room and bring them in and say, uh, Howard Stahl's here. What do you think of him? You know, one of he's a goof and we'll go stand over there. And then the next guy come in. What do you think? Oh, he's a great guy. We'll go stand over. You probably have 50 people on the side of the room. Think I'm a goof and 50 people that think I'm an okay guy. But I hope as far as job wise, I hope they would know that I'm, that I'm competent, that I care about them, uh, that I, I want to see them work hard, go home, have fun mm-hmm. and get the most out of their careers. I was about to ask you, how would you describe yourself as a leader? Well, if you want to get textbook about it, uh, I, I, I took a class. I hate classes. I took a class. Leadership development at Ivy Tech. Uh, fantastic class. We watched movies. Hey. Yeah, it's all you did. You watch movies. Yeah, like uh, 12 Angry Men, we watched yeah. it. And, and the, guys, the guy would go through, you know, like informal leaders and their different type of leadership and everything. And you would apply it to the movie that you were watching, Billy Budd, Glory, some of the ones we watched. And you watch the movie, you don't really don't pick up on those, you know, little minutia, but, but you did, you know, in this class and it was fantastic. And I came out of their understanding that I'm very much a servant leader. Uh, it's, I, I won't ask anybody to do anything I won't do kind of thing, you know, but I'll also want to support them all the way and I'll be there with them all the way. Uh, understand, I, I, I shouldn't say this, but I'll say it. I'm not like a rules and regulations guy, but I am. You know, you have to be, you're forced to yeah. at times. But for the most part, I understand we're all adults. You know the rules. You, know, you come in here, uh, I expect company officers to run their companies. I expect there's a problem in the firehouse, they handle it. If it gets to me coming up the chain, you know, uh, we can deal with it in the battalion. If you can, if it comes from outside of it, you know, if some of the mayor's action center to the mayor's office, to the chief's office, to the ops chief, you know, that comes down to you, a little different tact you have to take from there. You got to do something. But for the most part, I want to take care of people. I understand things go on. You know, you have babies, uh, you have mortgages, uh, you have trouble at home, you have issues, there are things. Uh, try to look deep into the person to find out, uh, what's going on with you. Why are you acting like this at work and how do we fix this, you know, and, and take care of them from, from a holistic point rather than just general order 1.04 says, I know what the general order says, what's wrong with this guy? How can we fix him? You know, uh, that, that's, uh, and, and I've gotten that cause that's the way all of the people that I worked with were. You know, if you did something that was wrong, they would come to you and go, what's going on with you? You know, that's, that's not it. Uh, you do come to a point in time where you realize some people are just assholes. You know, well, you, yeah. you got to get the general orders out and go, okay, I've explained it to you every other way humanly possible. Now let me explain what the rule book says. You know, and you got to put paper on somebody. But I, I, there probably haven't been a half a dozen times that I've had to go to that extent, you know, to, to really document. Say, so, all right, I'm going to start documenting this stuff now. But again... I'm blessed with superior, outstanding firefighters. They just don't, they don't give me any problems. I mean, it's, it's a no, knock on wood. Uh, as of this moment, I haven't had any major problems with the guys. So. Why do you think a lot of officers or chiefs will micromanage? I, I don't know. I, I just, and, and as much as you try to tell them, you know, just let the guys work. Just let, let them do, you know, let them be who they are. Uh, let them go. Uh, I, I think it might be a fear on their own part that something goes wrong, they're going to hang me. So I've got to hold you responsible for that. So I got to worry about everything that you're doing. Uh, I can't live like that. I mean, I just, I don't, I don't like 
is a perfect example of it. Uh, when I took the uh, psych evaluation, we did the MMPI, Minnesota Multiphasic Inventory Test. They ask you about 1,100 questions. It drives you crazy by the time you're done. And they're, and they're idiot questions. Do you like orchids? I, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Did you love your mother? I yeah, you know, and and, be, and it, you know, do you drink your bath water? You know, it's it's not, you, you pick your nose. They ask you all these questions, and after about eleven hundred of them, your eyes are just rolling in your head, and you go, "How can you tell anything about me like that?" So when I went to the department shrink uh, before I got on, he did an evaluation of me. and walked in, sat down, and I said, uh, "You know, I got I got all the right answers. I'm just not going to give them to you." You know, it's like, "What uh, what's that thing tell me about myself?" And he goes, "Oh, he goes, everything's fine. He goes, I don't see anything wrong here. You know, you're moving on to next step. You know, to take that away from you." He goes, I do have a couple of questions for us. Yeah, what's that? And he said, uh, "Why do you have a problem with authority?" And I went, "Oh," <laughs> I said, uh, "How do you answer this?" You know, how, how do you give the right answer, but give the honest answer, mm -hmm. but not do it in a way that somebody's going to go, well, if he's got an authority problem, we're not hiring him. I said, I don't, I don't have a problem with authority. And he looked at me kind of funny. I said, does that say I do? And he says, yeah, it says you do. I said, I have a problem with incompetence. And he sat there for a minute and he got this ear to ear grin. He goes, good answer. <laughs> I thought, okay. And that's what I've always had a problem with. People that micromanage and want to look over your shoulder and tell you everything that you need to do. You're a trained firefighter. You went through the academy. You know, you probably got an advanced degree. You've got so many years on. I trust you. So there's a trust problem that comes down with some officers and especially some chief officers because I think they have a feeling of how things are going to be. You know, this is how this is going to be in this battalion. It's like, dude, no. You've got to work with the people that are here. This battalion is going to be how those people are. Mm -hmm. And if you've got a rotten battalion, you just need to train them, you need to deal with them, you need to run them off. I don't know what you need to do. Um, but you need to fix your problem. And the problem isn't micromanaging everything that they do. The problem is explaining what you're expecting out of them professionally and let them go and let them do what they do. What do you see the next big issue in the fire services? Oh, boy. You've been uh, doing it for a while. So yeah. I, well, something. I think the thing that we're getting into now is uh, far more of the technological wizardry. Uh, I think you're going to see come about. We, we've got now uh, the SEMS units uh, for the Scott Air Packs that we've got. Mm -hmm. The uh, gauge block sends back a signal. We can tell everything that's going on with that air pack, which air pack it is, how much air is in it, is it free-flowing, are they flowing any air at all, is there pass device on. We can do silent PAR. We can do uh, emergency evacuations off of it. Uh, and a lot of the older chiefs are like, I don't need this damn thing. You know, it's like, well, you know, it's, it's the wave of the future. It's what's coming, the electronic you know, you're going to see turnout gear that may have biometrics built into it. Mm -hmm. Not only do we know what your air pack's doing, but we know the ambient temperature around you. We know your body core temperature. We know your breath breath rate. We know everything that's going on. You're going to see SCBA face pieces that have uh, um, thermal them. imaging built into them, and that's going to transmit back to a screen, and you're going to be able to see what your fire crews are seeing inside the building. Uh, you're going to have accountability and management systems that are all set up, and it's going to be the chief's role 
Uh, and the EXO's role is going to change quite a bit because somebody's going to have to monitor all that crap. And it's going to be very more disciplined, very more German-like, like we started from the beginning, mm-hmm. that somebody's going to be assigned to sitting and looking at all that stuff and maintaining accountability of people. Because we've always had, we've got the pack trackers, and you've always, you can get like the avalanche things where you can find somebody located, yeah. devices. Uh, but it's the X, Y axis, but you never saw the Z. You never knew, you know, were they two floors below or are they 14 floors above? Well, they've got technology now that solve that. So you're going to have something built into your turnout gear that's going to track you on the fire ground. So if you have a distress, you have a mayday, something that goes on, we're going to know you're at 110 feet up and you're this far out and the signal's going to come back and we're going to be able to locate you more. So all the little electronic wizards and gizmos that old guys like me really don't like screwing with because I don't have time for that. You know, it's like... And it's coming, boys. It's on its way, whether you like it or not. And it's closer than what you think. It's a cost-effective thing right mm-hmm. now. As soon as the, as soon as they get the costs down on it and they mass produce it, and a lot of the things that the military uses right now, it's, yeah. it's coming to us. Uh, I, I laugh when I hear guys say that, and I think, God, all the things I've seen in the fire service. I mean, you can go all the way back to when they built Station 12 on Sherman Drive. There was a last firehouse built for horse-drawn apparatus, really? and when they delivered the Stutz engine out there to the captain. They said, here you go, stop using the horses. We don't have anything to do with them right now. We're going to leave them here. He refused to use the engine. Cause it do you remember what year that was? Yeah, 1915. Wow. said, you, uh, you can't rely on that. You know, where am I going to get fuel for it? You know, if the thing breaks down, what am I going to do? You know, the horses are right here. He kept using the horses. They had to order him to use that engine and then move the horses out of there so he'd stop using them. But, I mean, was he wrong? Yeah, I mean, for his generation and his time, he was absolutely right. Where are you going to get fuel for that thing? You know, I don't understand how it works. I mean, all the things we look at today, and I, I look at from when I came on, the changes that we made from the two and a half inch hose with the brass couplings and inch and a half attack lines and the little fog nozzles and things that we had at the time, get low and whip it, mm-hmm. you know, all this, all the techniques we did, those are all out the window right now. And when we started going to just night pants, we got away from, you know, the day boots into the bunk, full bunker gear. Guys were like, oh, I'm not wearing that hood because I can't feel my ears. You know, my ears are my detector, whether to get in and out. Were they wrong? No, they were absolutely correct. But fires had changed you know they weren't yeah. staying up with with the thermal environment that had changed so much with light lake construction and all the you know synthetic materials and everything flashovers when i first came on they teach flashovers and backdrafts but it was a phenomenon you may see once or twice in your career hell you may see it once or twice a week now when you mm-hmm. see some of these fires i mean you, you really got to you know encapsulate yourself and protect yourself mask guys didn't want to wear masks uh we went to five-inch hose. You know, we got three-inch hose. That's as big. Two three-inch lines are six inches. You know, it's as good as a five-inch. And all the things that we do now and don't even think about, every one of those things met resistance all the way up the chain to now. Because everybody was in the paradigm they lived in. They were in the generation they lived in and what it was that they thought was right. They weren't wrong. They just weren't, you know, Darwin said it's not the strongest or the smartest of the species that survives, but that which is most readily adaptable to change. So when you realize you can't change, it's time to clock out, time to take the pension and go, you know, it's just, you got to. And, and, and I can feel a lot of these electronic things, you know, I've got to ask my daughter, Libby, come here and take out my phone. You know, I don't have a Libby on fire scenes with me. I got Larry. It's like, Larry, how's this damn thing work? You know? And, and, uh, so, I mean, I can feel me kind of outliving my usefulness to a certain point. And when these things come in, I'm not going to like it either, but it's coming. And that's, that's probably one of the biggest things around the corner. You read a lot of books. Oh, I read all the time. That's, yeah. I can tell. Yeah, I probably read, I don't know, 
I don't know, 50, 60 books a year, probably. Really? Yeah, yeah, I love to read. You read a certain genre, or you just read anything? Yeah, I, I mean, it gets right down to it. It's usually action-packed stuff. It's mm-hmm. like Tom Clancy, David oh, Baldacci, yeah. you know, those kind of things. Uh, um, but uh, Jack Reacher, you know, that, that, those <laughs> yeah. kind of things. But I read a lot of historical books. I'm reading a couple. I've read a couple right now. One was um, The Good Soldiers. Finkel, Frankel was is the guy. He embedded himself with the uh, Ranger Battalion that went over for the surge, mm. uh, that ended up with all the issues with the advanced IEDs and stuff, and just got torn up. And then the next one is Thank You for Your Service. I'm reading his second book, and it's uh, on the PTSD and the things the soldiers are going mm. as they come back. So you you learn a lot from that. Uh, you, you just learn when you read. I mean, there's just something that catches my eye. I'll pick it up and start reading it. But it's usually something action-packed, something yeah. fun or historical. Do you actually just read the physical book, unlike uh, doing an audio book? I've done a couple of audio books, especially when we were traveling to Japan. Yeah, I got a couple of those uh, uh, on my iPod, uh, which is now outdated. But uh, still, is this still work? Oh yeah, it's Are great. You oh, I was in the gym the other day, and I had the thing on my a band on my sleeve, and the guy goes, "Dude," I said, "What?" He goes, "Where'd you get that?" I said. I got it for Father's Day about 10 years ago. He goes, man, that's an antique. And I thought, an antique? I said, it works great. He goes, oh, man. He goes, I'd love to have that. He goes, don't set it down around here. I'm going to steal it. I thought, all right, you can have it. You know, but I don't know. This is how it is. But, uh, yeah, I had a Kindle for a while, and that drove me crazy. I like the yeah. physical book. You know, I just, it's just, yeah, I'm old, so I, I like books. You know, I like mm-hmm. to be able to dog ear the pages or have a bookmark yeah. and go to it or read back through, just flip a couple pages like the character. Make you go, who's this person, you know? Yeah. You go back and you go, oh, okay, that's who that person is. Yeah, it's like, I just like a physical book. So I've got, got them all around the house. My wife wants me, where are you going to do with these books? <laughs> we got to go. Okay, take those to the book place and sell them. Get them out of here. So they're stacked everywhere. So That is really cool. Yeah, I've always got books going. What gym? You don't have to say what gym do you go to, but what gym do you go to? I work at Anytime Fitness over anytime? here. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right over here on uh, well, just Thompson? South County Line Road. Or is, no, it's not Thompson, is yeah, it? It used to be. I went. I started out on Thompson Road. Okay. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name that ran it, but uh, then I switched over here. It's down by the Walmart there, South of County Line mm-hmm. Road, where Ale Emporium is, yeah. and Lindo, Mexico, best margaritas in the world there. Uh, really? Oh, have you ever been to Lindo's? Where is it? Where is Lindo, it? Mexico. Lindo, Mexico? Where's that at? It's on County Line Road. Or it's on Emerson. Emerson? County Line Road. You know where the Ale Emporium is? Yeah. Uh, it's just down from that a little ways. Across the street. Uh, it's that new Mexican joint there? No, that's Leon's. This, Leon's. this is over in the strip mall that's got Anytime Fitness. The Goodwill's in there now. Um, what else is in there? There's a, a Comcast thing in there. But Ale Emporium's on a corner. It's the southwest corner. Oh, yeah. And they've got a guy. I'm trying to remember his name right now, and it escapes me. I can see him. But he uh, does fantastic margaritas. You drink margaritas? Oh, I love margaritas. <clears throat> I get made fun of all the time at work for drinking margaritas. Oh, I mean, not at work. I don't drink margaritas at work. I drink margaritas every time I go out. Oh, yeah. I get well. made fun of all the time for it. Oh, really? Yeah, suck it, boys. Like, yeah. Oh, no. oh I well, drink them all the time. Well, they I'm get, proud. They got some fruity ones. Oh, yeah. I'll stand, oh. I'll stand up in my triple berry margarita. Thank what are you, you going to do about berry, it, pal? I love triple berry margaritas. <laughs> yeah, he's got. I've, I've had. Have you ever had passion fruit? Yes, passion fruit margaritas. Yeah, you we went to this place. Oh, you've good. you've got to go to Lindo, Mexico, because this guy makes all these. Maybe we'll meet there sometime. Absolutely, Maybe call me. Know. We'll go. I will get trashed yeah. here drinking margaritas. Yes, I ain't afraid of that. I'll have my wife drive us home. She's good at that. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, we went to this place. We went to Cancun. We go to Cancun every year. Yeah, it's just a fun place to go. I love Mexico. I love Mexicans, to be honest. But um, we went. We go downtown Cancun. We just take a taxi all the way out, and there's this place called Peter's. It's this guy who's a some 
some big chef used to work for the hotels and all that stuff and mm-hmm. then worked for a big famous restaurant. And then I guess I can switch the camera over to my face now. <laughs> hey, I'm actually here. There's this uh, place called Peter's, downtown Cancun, which I highly doubt, I highly recommend you guys going if you want. I keep looking <clears> up. I highly recommend going there because the place is amazing. Best food. Chef comes out and talks to you. Yeah. And he's like, oh, my name is Peter. I, he has a weird accent. It's not really, it's not like a Spanish accent. Yeah. It's something weird. But he'll come out and talk to you and then says, hey, this is what's been, you know, the most fresh. It's been brought in either from the catch out in the ocean or it was flown in. And right now we've got this um, piece of meat that's been smoking for the last 12 hours. Would you like to try it? Yeah, man, like bring it on down. And then he comes in and then they they specifically prepare each meal. Like every meal is cooked separately by him. And then they bring it all out. I had a passion fruit margarita and he put black pepper in it. Mm. And that was amazing. Yeah. I got two of those. I was. Yeah. It's it's all fresh ingredients, yeah. and the guy and the guy that makes them over there, uh, they, they've got probably ten or twelve on a regular menu, and then there's the one of the week. So you just mm-hmm. mixes something up and goes in, and you never know what it's going to be. Uh, but they are outstanding. Uh, you can get them frozen. They're usually on the rocks. You can get yeah, a flight. You can get a small flight right. for them, kind of sample through. Uh, God, I wish I could remember a couple of the others. Uh, there's one. Uh, it's got this little stick in it. It's not like cinnamon. It's some like fruit tree bark or something that they put down in it it's got a real spice to it it's outstanding right. outstanding yeah it's great oh my gosh that's so exciting i met somebody else that's pretty cool that drinks margaritas. <laughs> oh yeah yeah it's good stuff good stuff usually the people i meet that drink margaritas are yeah fruity yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. hopefully no one gets upset yeah. about that but if you do i don't care <laughs> well i like margaritas mark me down i guess i, I tell you say. what they're delicious i mean yeah. like you talked about earlier bourbon i drink bourbon i'll drink whiskey uh, every once in a while i do rum mm-hmm. i don't drink beers i don't like beer i don't like the taste of it but i'll drink margaritas yeah i went to a bar and the guys got the guy down guy a couple down uh people from me i was with a buddy of mine named brent brent's a pretty big stout dude and then i can't remember who the other guy was and then it was me all they they saw was a big beer big beer margarita and someone <laughs> said something a couple people down didn't know that when i stood up that i was serious about it like who just made fun of me for drinking a margarita and i was like three times the size of the guy and then he looked at me i'm not an i'm not a mean intimidating person yeah. but he looked at me and he goes i'm so sorry I'm like, <laughs> i said you better be well, <laughs> i like smiled because i'm like i don't know i'm not gonna do anything i really don't care like, <laughs> i'll tell you with 9-11 coming up an incredible story. We were at the Redmond Symposium in Honolulu mm-hmm. for the International Safety Symposium. Those that aren't familiar with it, and it, it's it's great. It's great. But uh, Morning Pride was a manufacturer of turnout mm-hmm. gear, and they had a hospitality room, and they invited everybody over, and they were kind of trying to sell Indianapolis. So they invited all the Indianapolis guys over there, and we were sitting there, and New York had just bought Morning Pride a couple of years before that, so oh. they had a big delegation that were all there. And they were making Mai Tais at the bar. And this is in Honolulu, so this is the real deal. Yeah. These things were great. And I'm up there, and I'm getting, I'm getting a Mai Tai. And uh, the gal, I, God, I can't remember her name, I can see her that ran Morning Pride. She says, hey, i got somebody I want you to meet. I said, yeah, who's that? And she goes, well, his name's Pete Gansey. He's the operations chief for New York Fire Department. And I said, really? I said, well, I'll meet him. So he comes over, and he's got a beer, and I'm standing there, and he goes, hey, the hell is that there you're drinking? I said, oh, that's a Mai Tai. It is, you know, great New York brogue. And he goes, ah, fruity looking drink. I said, that's pretty good. Did you want me to get you one? He goes, yeah. So he got one. So he takes a sip and he goes, hey, that's good. I said, yeah, they're really good. So he goes over to where all the New York guys are and they're going, 
the hell are you drinking? He goes, it's a Mai Tai, man. He goes, we ain't drinking that shit. And, and we were all laughing about it and went over and sat down. And I said, yeah, I said, I got him drinking Mai Tais. You know, he's the ops chief for FDNY. And before we left, we walk out and they've all got Mai Tais. I'm like, these are pretty good, Andy. I said, yeah, okay, those are great. <laughs> so, yeah, I got to meet Pete Gancy before 9-11. Really? Yeah. yeah. Wow. That is amazing. Yeah, he was chief of department uh, and lost that day. Mm. Um, well, since 9-11 is coming up soon, uh, I was just a young kid. I think I was eight years old when it did happen. <clears throat> Excuse me. I was seven or eight. Seven or eight years old. Where were you when, when <laughs> September 11th happened? It's my wedding anniversary. Really? It was my eighth wedding anniversary, and we were in Mackinac Island on an, on, in Michigan, on an island with no motorized equipment at all. They got a police car two snowmobiles and a fire truck. I think that's all they've got up there as far as most, everything is horse drawn. It's a step back in time. If you've not been there, you got to go Mackinac. Yeah. It's fabulous. And we were there and had my daughter with us. That's a whole story in itself. She wasn't supposed to go, but uh, she ended up with us and, and they let us bring her up to this bed and breakfast that we were at. And, uh, we, she was watching television and she was trying to find her cartoons and I'm sitting there next to her and she's thumbing through with the remote and, and I see this fire and she goes, I say, Hey, hey, hey. I say, let me see that remote. She goes, ah, I'm looking for my cartoons. I said, give me the remote. So I run back. I thought, Holy crap, Ann, look at this. I see my wife was a, a nurse. She was a yeah. flight nurse with lifeline. So, oh, wow. you know, she understands the whole yeah. public safety thing and been with me forever. And we're sitting there and, uh, I said, something happened to the world trade center. We didn't know what it was. And we're sitting there watching and just mesmerized by it. And then the recounts of plane hit it and everything. I thought, God, how does a plane hit the World Trade Center? And then the second one hit. And we're like, oh, geez. And then when the one collapsed, I remember staring at the television and going, we just lost 500 guys. And she said, do you, do you think 500 people were killed? I said, there's thousands in that building. I'm just talking firemen. Mm-hmm. So we probably just lost 500 firemen. Thankfully, I was wrong. Uh, it was less. But... Uh, the shock of that just, you know, and the, the, the incongruity of being on Mackinac Island where there's nothing, there's no airport, there's, there's nothing and sitting and watching this on television fold out on lower Manhattan. That just, it was just shocking. I mean, I, I just, it was, I know how my parents felt about Pearl Harbor. You know, they were World War II generation people. So I, I always knew how they felt, but I never felt how they felt. And that's, I, I got that. I thought this, I know this is exactly how they felt. So, well, Did you notice a, I've heard this from accounts from other guys that are a little bit older. Did you notice a difference in the public eye for oh, fire? It was, it was, it was uncomfortable. You know, because we're, we're humble people, mm-hmm. you know, it's like you, you don't mind a handshake and a hey, thanks, pal, you know, and, and that's when that thank you for your service started coming out. You're like, I don't know how to respond to that. And I was in Starbucks one day and there was a soldier in there and they said, thank you for your service. And he said, thank you for your support. I thought, ah, now I know that's what a, to say when people say, say that because I mean, yeah. I'd gone like five years ago looking at him and go, yeah, you're a taxpayer, <laughs> right? Okay, thank you. Thank you for your taxes. You know, I don't know what to say to that, you know, <laughs> but I mean, people would stop and I mean, to put their hands over their heart, they'd salute you, you know, wow. you're driving down the street and, and people would bring their kids by and these are real heroes and it's like no i'm an idiot i'm just an average idiot just have to be a fireman you know and it's not that special and but it was incredible i mean even my family you know would sit and look at it and they were they you know if you were related to or knew somebody that was on the job or somehow the firefighter and you saw what happened you knew you kind of knew the dangers and you knew what could possibly happen mm-hmm. but when you saw it on full screen like that and you realized 
that, that's every day. You know, these guys going into these residence fires, these guys are going into these building fires and everything else. That's that same dedication just on a massive scale that nobody could ever comprehend, but it was the same thing. So it hit a lot of families. I mean, it, it hit my, my daughter Libby. We were in a, in a restaurant, and it was probably five or six days after we'd gotten back, and President Bush was coming on, and he was making some kind of a speech. And, of course, the whole restaurant went quiet. She came up and said something. I said, quiet, president speaking. She goes, okay. So she was like six at the time, so she dummied up, you know, and then she asked me her question what it was over with. A week later, I'm out cutting the grass, and she comes flying out of the front of our house. She's going, Dad, Dad. And I shut the door, and I said, what? She goes, come here. And I said, okay. And I went inside. I said, what? She goes, the president's talking. <laughs> said, Thanks, honey. You know, it was some old B-roll of him saying something. She goes, I thought you'd want to know. I said, oh, I, I really did, honey. Thank you very much for letting me know the president's talking. <laughs> now, now, whenever the president's talking, I'm like, I definitely have Oh, uh, yeah. It's like, yeah, the president's talking. What oh, else is he going to talk about? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We don't need to talk politics. Uh, yeah. Yeah, don't get me started on that. Hmm. I've actually got something cool to show you after this. Whenever we're done, I got something yeah. cool to show you. Cool. I think you'll enjoy it. I always show it off. I'm always super excited. All right. Um, so with with the transition from September 11th and that upcoming is pretty soon. Is there anything that you would want to say to this next generation of firefighters that are coming in, that are bright eyed? Bushy, bushy tailed, ready, ready to serve for the next thirty years. Is there anything that you want them to know, or want to tell them that'll help them throughout their career? Uh, that's a big, big spectrum. That's a broad brush, but I think we narrow it down. Uh, I would just say, keep the faith, learn the job, love the job, do the job. I mean, train as much as you can, learn as much as you can, um, study. As much as you can get out of your own backyard find out what other departments do if you can get involved like in that cologne exchange program or get in something uh, you get friends on other departments i mean i know guys and i can't go anywhere with that especially working with indycar i mean all around the world i've got i got friends everywhere that we work with out at the tracks and stuff uh learn from them uh, understand them uh, listen to these podcasts and things as they're getting salty and a few of the others that are out there you can listen to listen to what people have to say uh Keep your eyes and ears open, your mouth shut, uh, learn the job and love the job. It'll take really good care of you. That's awesome. Well, I, got, I just have one more question popping in my head. It's kind of a downer question, but how do you deal with loss? Well, I, I learned it early in my life, yeah. unfortunately. Uh, when I was seven years old, uh, my oldest brother was killed in an automobile accident. Yeah. Uh, and I remember he was active duty air force and we had, uh, he was, he was working out of Bunker Hill air force base, was on his way home, um, uh, after working up to about midnight or so, uh, and his sergeant was actually following him the story that I understand. Uh, he swerved to miss something, a deer, something came out in front of me and hit a tree. Uh, he lived for several days, uh, it used to be a long hospital, had a serious TBI, uh, and, uh, didn't make it today. He probably would have lived you know, with Lifeline and with yeah. all the level one trauma centers and everything else. And that was kind of one of the things that led me towards the passion of the fire department. You know, if I could save somebody's big brother from being killed, it's like that, that was one of the real driving mo motivations for me. Um, and I've just seen so much of it. Unfortunately, it's just kind of 
how I've been. Lost my dad at a very early age. I was 18, 19 when my dad died. Uh, been around it. I had an older generation of people. I was the youngest of five kids. World War II was in the middle there that my dad went to World War II. So there's seven years difference between me and my next youngest sister uh, and, and uh, 17 years different between my oldest brother and I. Uh, so like all the aunts and uncles, grandparents, I never knew any of my grandparents, they were gone. So I've grown up with loss and understanding it. And then when you get on the job and you actually see it, um, one of, well, one of the first, I might've been a volunteer for like a month mm -hmm. and American Red Cross first aider, I was going to go out and save the world. I was all pumped up, ready to go. And I was volunteering Lawrence and we'd work the ambulances from 10 at night to six in the morning you had what they called rescue squad and you would handle all the EMS runs. Um, we got a run up on Pendleton Pike, up on, Shea, on 465 at Pendleton Pike. A, it was when CB radios were really big. And uh, there had been a Volkswagen bus with two teenage girls in it that broke down and a good Samaritan guy driving around with his channel nine. Hey, good buddy. You know, CBs were huge and, and they were just good hearted people that would go around and help people. They're kind of like an in-dot guy now yeah. that, you know, and they go by and help them. So they got a hold of her parents, her dad and her brother came out and then an off duty sheriff's deputy stopped with his girlfriend in the car. Mm -hmm. So there was like Jay-Z, Daisy chain of cars down the right side of 465 and a uh, semi driver fell asleep, drove up on the side of the sheriff's deputy's car into those cars and the dad and brother were down and the good Samaritan were down working on the back of the Volkswagen and the girls were standing in front of it. So it was boom, 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 hit the girls, threw them back out on a 465. The, their bus hit them, threw them out. So there were two trauma ones there, uh, killed the brother and the dad outright. The good Samaritan got rolled between the guardrail had bilateral amputations of his lower legs. Sheriff's deputy saw it coming and we didn't know where he was. He tried to jump over the rail, but got his foot caught. He had a tip-fib compound, and then he rolled down probably 20, 30 feet down the hill and was down there. We didn't even know he was there to begin with. And uh, I remember going around and looking at, at this guy, and I, I'm 18 years old now. <laughs> American Red Cross first aid, I didn't even put a Band-Aid on anybody, and here I am at this shit scene. Yeah. And I looked at the guy, and, I, and he was blue. I mean, I thought he's dead. And uh, so Greg Gates was there. Greg was trying to put tourniquets on him. And, and I said, Greg, we got to move on. This guy's dead. And about that time, his eyes opened up. And he said, I'm not dead. God, help me. Save me. And I was done. Uh, I, I will never forget the fluids from the cars and the blood uh, running down the interstate into the sewer that was there i mean it, there was it was it was it, the smells the crunching glass I, I can smell it to today what happened on that run never forgotten that uh and i really questioned whether i could do the job or not at the time i thought man i you see this stuff all the time <laughs> i mean this is kind of and, and then the worst part of it was they transported him and then we got his legs and we put him in a couple pillowcases and we went to community hospital and we brought the legs in. Well, he'd passed away and they, they said, well, we'll take his legs. You know, you know, if I could put them back on or what you could do, you know, 1978, what can you do? Well, 1970, 78, yeah, I was, what can you do with this? 76, 1976, what can you do with these? And, uh, as well, he passed away. You know, when he, you know, I walked out into the ambulance bay and this guy comes in, he grabs me and he says, please, please tell me my son's alive. 
I don't know who he is. We're in the Amulets Bay Community East. I said, well, who's your son? And he described the guy whose legs I was just carrying. I'm like, you'll have to talk to one of the physicians. <laughs> I don't really know, sir. I'm sorry. But, you know, he knew what had happened in Lawrence yeah. and saw Lawrence ambulances, my Lawrence patches and everything. I thought, oh, my God. Uh, so you get hit with that pretty early on in your career. I mean, that really, really sticks with you. I mean, you talk about PTSD and all these things. You know, it was, I went through all that. Uh, and you just, I hate to say it, but you either cut it or you don't cut it. You know, you come to the grips, Mike Bray, the guy I talked about earlier, I went to Mike and said, Mike, I'm having trouble with this. He was my officer on that ambulance and he sat down and said, well, did you do everything that you possibly could? What could you do better? Think through it, work through the problem and everything. And he helped me really through to the other side of it. Cause I doubted for a while there, whether I could do the job or not. I was, it, it shocked me. I mean, it, it really rocked me to the core because everything up to that point in time had all been theoretical. You know, it's like, oh, I'm going to save lives. I'm going to be the toughest fireman there ever was. And a month into it, you're like, holy crap, I don't know if I can do this or not, you know. So you, 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 you learn to deal with it. I mean, uh, I was part of the first um, uh, CISM team, uh, CISD team, they called it, uh, after the uh, collapse at the um, – Mirage um, Shrine. We got guys that were trapped in there, and we had no. Uh, they had a fire on the from here. This is eighty-seven. It was another one. I got away for a meeting. Should have been on the fire and wasn't. But there was a storeroom in the very back of it, uh, and they had built, kind of illegally, they had built like a second tier storage area where they had stored a bunch of heavy equipment stuff mm-hmm. in for the dining facility that was there. And they had a fire that started in this thing. So they went in there and they were getting it knocked down and then it collapsed and it trapped probably 10 or 12 guys in there and seriously injured a couple of them. Uh, hurt Charlie uh, Thompson pretty bad, put him off the job. He broke his back. Uh, Chief Greason was one of the guys that was in there. Um, yeah, guys with some pretty serious injury, fractured femurs and some other stuff. And they had to cut out the back wall to get them out. It was, it was a mess of a scene. Uh, but, uh, it was right across the street from headquarters and it was right across the street from the credit union. So families, wives, people were down there and they were lying in the streets wanting to know, you know, are my husband okay? And they're pulling him out of the back end of it. And, uh, uh, there was nothing, there wasn't really anything for anybody. And, uh, Dave Greider, who's another guy would have been one of the other mentors on the job, taught me a lot. He started the first critical incident stress debriefing team. And I was part of that Worked with the shrinks and everybody on that it became critical incident stress management. And then it became, uh, psychological first aid they've changed it to a bunch of different things but they're still the peer support workers to this day that work with everybody and and understand those situations and work through them so once you've been there you kind of you learn how to compartmentalize it and you learn how to how to deal with it uh it's tough i mean they're there you just you just learn it's just another day man you Mm -hmm. just got to drive on if you don't i mean what are your options what are you going to do what's the biggest thing that most people misunderstand about you Probably my sense of humor. I mean, um, when they get to know me, I've got a pretty dry, uh, mm-hmm. kind of a sarcastic wit. And uh, I've learned there's the fire department humor that doesn't translate to civilian life. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, you know, there's been a few times I've said things that people will stop and look at me and I go, You don't get that, do you? You don't get that gallows humor at all, do you? And I got a really bad gallows humor. So when people first meet me and I'll throw something out, you know, my wife kicks me every now and again. Can't say that. Oh, I'm sorry. That was the firehouse coming out of me, you know. So that's probably the biggest misunderstanding anybody has because a lot of guys will take me seriously. And then they'll go and they go, the chief just told me this. And they're like, screw him. Don't pay any attention to him. He's just jacking with you, kid. Don't worry about him. I don't think so. I think he was serious. And I'll have to go, I was joking. I was joking. Okay, you got to learn my sense of humor. That's awesome. Well, we've been going on that almost two hours. Cool. That's 
Talking yeah, fire shit. Anything else you want to add? Yeah, no, this was good. Yeah, this, this, yeah, I like this. This is good. I mean, you can get a lot of guys. You need to do like a crew. You need to I'll get my old Ladder 7 crew back here. And really? We'll start cutting it up. I, get, I tell you what, uh, I could figure something out. Yeah. That will actually, I can probably come to your firehouse. Yeah. I can bring everything. I've got a, my father-in-law does this stuff professionally. Really? Yeah. That's, yeah. Well, among, among, I have been tongue-tied. Among other things. This is one of the things, not podcasting, but he does videography and photography yeah. professionally. That's where I got that light. And oh, yeah. He gives me all the ideas for the kind of stuff I can run with. Oh, that's but, fine. Uh, there could be a way I could figure that out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You get uh, some of the retired guys, my old sevens I'd crew or something. That. We could we could go on stories for all night long. I would love You to might have that. to have the bourbon that night. but uh. no, I'll buy it. I'll buy all the bourbon you guys need. I'll go bankrupt doing it. Uh, okay. I'll, I'll all right. Well, we'll have well, fun doing thank it. Thank you so much for coming on. I'd love pleasure. to have you on it another time. Not thanks. To push you on. Thanks but. for asking me. I mean, like I said, you're talking fire shit. I can talk all day. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, sir. Thank you. All right. And then we're done. What'd you think? That's fun.